You're listening to the special episode of Secret Origins Podcast. That's right, the one and only special episode. All of the others, lame. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is a special episode. I mean, every episode is special in its own way, but this one specifically is special, like Facebook official special, because this episode is dedicated to Secret Origins special number one. To honor this special occasion with all of its specialness, I'm doing something a little different with this episode. Typically on this show, I have a guest on every different segment. I don't review any of the stories by myself. I deviated from that formula once with the origin of the Justice League of America back on episode 32. That time, I talked to five different guests, each individually, and got their feedback on certain elements of the origin story, as well as the Justice League in general, and I wove them all together in something fairly coherent. For this episode, I'm kind of doing a hybrid of that and a normal episode. See, the Secret Origins special includes three origin stories of Batman villains, and I'm going to tackle those stories as I normally would, with different guests. But this issue also had a framing story that opened, ran between, and closed out the different origins. That framing story I'm going to do more like the JLA episode. I'll synopsize those sequences, give you my analysis, but I'll also be dropping in a few responses from my guests. In addition to talking about the specific stories, I asked each of them a number of questions about Batman's villains in general and aspects of this issue in particular. On these segments, you will hear from Michael Bailey, host of Views from the Longbox and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians and Podcasta La Vista Baby. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial Podcast. And, making his first appearance on Secret Origins, Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog. If this is your first time listening to the Secret Origins podcast, all of that preamble might not mean a lot to you. Or maybe it means everything. I don't know. Either way, you should know that Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Sadly, none of them spotlight famous Batman villains like the Calculator, Kite Man, or Killer Moth. 
No, we have to settle for a trio of also-rans in Two-Face, Penguin, and the Riddler. The first question I put to my guests is, what makes Batman's villains so special? It is widely believed that Batman has one of, if not the greatest rogues gallery in superhero comics. Why is that? What makes them stand out above the rest? Michael Bailey. I honestly think the answer to that question, it's the same answer for both questions, and that is... Not only are they good villains, but they've had a lot of exposure in pop culture. When you look at the 60s television series, which put the Riddler on the map, and he only had a handful of appearances before that TV series was even on, but now he's considered one of Batman's big villains, and that's because that show was in syndication for like 50 years. It's now on Blu-ray and DVD. So when you have characters like the Joker, who was on just about every animated version of Batman ever, and in several of the movies, when you have Two-Face, who's been in a couple of films... When you've had, you know, characters like Catwoman, who has gone beyond, you know, just being a villain and and just using a version of that crappy version of that character, but a version of that character in her own film, I think because of exposure... It gives them a level of legitimacy, so then when you combine that with good writers and artists telling compelling stories about them, it puts them on a level that is above every other hero. And and I'm not saying, you know, my favorite character is Superman. I'm not saying he has a bad rogues gallery. I'm saying he has a rogues gallery that people have not used effectively. But, you know, Spider-Man has, like, a huge rogues gallery. But I think, in all honesty, you know, they haven't had the exposure that they could. And The Flash has a fantastic group of villains that is now starting to get exposure because of the television series. But, you know, Batman's been around for over 75 years at this point and has had so many adaptations of him in television and movies and on directed DVD and video stuff and all that. So... I think his villains just benefit from the perfect storm of multimedia exposure. Mike Gillis. I mean, there's the element that they're incredibly colorful and crazy and gimmicky. But I think it's also the fact that they were the first crazy, gimmicky, colorful, crazy bad guys. I mean, these were the guys that were doing over the top and the templates that all these other supervillain rose galleries were based on for decades. I mean, they were first. So, I mean, when you have a character who wears punctuation on his outfit, you know he's a bad guy because of the Riddler. And when you, you know, it has evil clowns and gangsters, but they're not just regular gangsters. They're gangsters with like an affinity for birds and umbrellas and everything is just kind of turned up to 11. And I think the thing that makes them really special is that each one of the villains that Batman has kind of pulls Batman in a different sort of story direction that they can be horror stories or detective stories or the tragic man becomes a monster story. You can have Batman going across the globe and doing James Bondy stuff or going into the sewers to fight a bad guy or solving puzzles. And then you have somebody like the Joker whose motivations are just so bonkers that they don't have to make sense. And I think that they're almost as versatile as Batman, because I think Batman really, as far as a comic book character, or really as far as a fictional character, is one of the most versatile fictional characters 
in all of publication. I mean, live action, cartoons, comics, whatever. Because there's this scale that you can put Batman on that moves him from campy and colorful to grim and gritty. And the beautiful thing about the bad guys is they can follow him all along that scale that you can take the Joker. And there's this never a point where the story becomes too dark or too light to be a Joker story. The same thing with Catwoman or the Penguin or Riddler or any of these guys is that they can follow him into every one of these different interpretations that he has. Because I know there's always different eras of a character, like, say, Daredevil. Daredevil was kind of a more jokey swashbuckler character for a long time, and he fought guys like Stiltman and Leapfrog. But when he gets grim and gritty and he's fighting people like Bullseye and Kingpin, you don't bring Leapfrog around. It's really rare to bring Stiltman back, unless you're doing it specifically as a joke. But Batman villains, it doesn't feel like there's ever a point where the tone ever forces them away, that they can be just as crazy and just as weird and just as I'm wearing a purple and green outfit colored in question marks. And it's it's fine. It works in every version. And I think that's what it is, is that they get to have multiple interpretations just the way that Batman does. And I think it makes them timeless. And I think it opens them up for different interpretations from all different kinds of creators to play them with genre and tone and story. And I don't know if there's a lot of other supervillain characters or supervillain rogues galleries that really have that kind of versatility. Clinton Robison. It seems like they're just gimmicky characters, but they're treated seriously. It's almost like the 66 show, but done without being tongue-in-cheek. The Joker, he's a clown, but he murders people. The Mad Hatter, look at the Mad Hatter. He's a caricature of a children's book character. But he's treated with such seriousness that you almost feel sorry for him until you realize that he's just the creepiest pedophilic character. And for some reason, that appeals to the readers. I can't explain it, but there's something there that people latch on to. Nathaniel Wayne. Honestly, I think it's primarily a function of time. And I don't just mean because a lot of these guys are old, but because they've been around so long and because they've been reused so many times, unless you've just got bad writers, you're going to start getting some really good stuff. Because you think of all the iconic Batman characters, Scarecrow, Penguin, Riddler, Two-Face, Catwoman. Across the board, you look at their early appearances, they're gimmicky as heck. I mean, they're one-note gimmick villains, but then for whatever reason, somebody brought them back. And you bring them back a few times until the gimmick wears out. But then for whatever reason, other writers went, you know what? Past the gimmick, there's more that I can do here. And I think it's that function of just being brought back as often as most of these villains have that eventually you can't just do the service gimmick anymore. You have to dig deeper if you're going to keep using them. Which is why I think almost none of the more recently introduced Batman, or really anybody's villains, but if we're going to single out Batman, almost none of his more recently introduced villains really have stuck or left much of an impression. I think the most recent one who has kind of left an impact was Bane, and they had to build an event around him to sort of force him to be big and important. But nobody introduced in the 80s is any good. you know. But Again, maybe if they keep bringing back these characters, as opposed to going back to these classic ones all the time, maybe in 30, 40 years, someone like Hush or Talon will be explored properly enough that they'll be held in the same esteem as someone like the Riddler or the Joker or Two-Face. Secret Origins published its third annual in April of 1989. 
In June, Warner Brothers released Batman, the film directed by Tim Burton and starring Michael Keaton as the Dark Knight detective and Jack Nicholson as the Clown Prince of Crime. If you were alive in 1989, you probably saw Batman, and if you went anywhere that sold clothing or entertainment goods such as bookstores, music stores, video stores, toy stores, hobby shops, or seriously anywhere else, you could not escape the crushing tidal wave of Bat-related merchandise that summer. Batman and Detective Comics began double shipping, DC published original Batman graphic novels and collections of previously released stories, and before the year was out, a brand new series, Legends of the Dark Knight, would begin. Mark Wade certainly knew 1989 was going to be a big deal for Batman, and initiated the trio of Clayface stories that would make up Secret Origins number 44 as a prelude-slash-tie-in to the Mudpack story arc in Detective Comics that I discussed with Chris Franklin and Kyle Benning on the last episode. But that hardly seemed like enough to bring the Bat fans over to Secret Origins. They needed to do something extra big and extra special. But as previously stated, Secret Origins had already published its 1989 annual, and who tries to make a splash with annual number 4 anyway? So they decided it should just be Secret Origins Special Number 1. It would not tell Batman's origin, which had already been published, sort of, back in issue 6. And besides that, his beginnings had been pretty thoroughly documented in comics, graphic novels, and even the movie itself. The special would focus on some of Batman's most iconic villains. And yet, Mark Wade made the perhaps risky decision not to showcase the Joker, whose likeness was all over the Bat merchandise that summer. What most people consider to be the definitive Joker story, note that I said most people, not everyone, the killing joke had just come out the year before, and it was everywhere. People had a Joker story if they needed one. So the Secret Origins special would pick two of Batman's most memorable adversaries from the 1966 television series, and one who never appeared in the campy Adam West show, but whose physical and psychological scars made him perfect for the serious DC comics of the late 80s and early 90s. There was something Secret Origins special could take from the killing joke, though, and that was Brian Bolland. Bolland drew the cover of Secret Origins special number one, which shows the Penguin, the Riddler, and Two-Face. Behind them lurks an almost cartoonish shadow of the Batman against a red background. What do you think of this cover? Well, it's a Brian Bolland cover, uh, and it's, which means it's awesome. I don't think I've ever seen a piece of art by Brian Bolland that was terrible. But I think one of his real strengths is I think he has the ability to mix quote-unquote realistic with iconic and cartoony really well. There's something about the way he draws just about every character that makes them feel like the perfect version of that character that you have in your head. I mean, for me, a lot of it was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, who has that same sort of ability, too, where it feels like, no, this is the real version when you look at this guy's artwork. And I think Brian Bolland just has this remarkable ability. And a lot of other writers who do quote-unquote realistic have a tendency to just fill everything with crosshatches and lines and stuff like that. But what I really like about his work is that he's got a real comfort with empty space. Like, there's places on this cover where it's just plain white or plain green on the Riddler's costume, where you look at the Penguin, and his shirt is just completely stark white. And aside from the buttons, there's no detail on it. My favorite thing on this entire cover is how the Penguin's hand looks while he's holding that umbrella. And the fact that when you pull gloves on your hand, it isn't like painting your hand a different color. There's a little bit of webbing that you can't help but have on a glove. And Penguin's gloves have that. So even if they were miscolored, you could still tell he was wearing gloves. 
And there's not a lot of creators that tend to do that. I mean, you see the same thing with the wrinkles on the Riddler's costume there, where it looks like he's wearing spandex rather than he's wearing body paint. And I think it's a little mix of all of these things without it detracting away from that crazy, iconic cartoon reality that just really makes it special. I mean, this could be a poster. I love this cover. This cover is great. I love the Riddler. Like, that is pure Frank Gorshin Riddler right there. And aside from just nailing the looks of all these guys, you get that snootiness just with the way the the penguin's got his head tipped back. Batman's silhouette in the back is perfect because it's it's like, you know, this is not his story. He's in the background, but still he's – they can't get out of his shadow. Like the only thing that I don't love, and it's not the fault of the artist or the cover. It's a stylistic choice, and it was kind of the prevailing thing of the era. But I don't like the perfect symmetry of Two-Face. The perfect line split down the middle because just of how inorganic that is. But that, you know, it's still a cool look. It's just not – it kind of annoys me when they do that with Two-Face. But that's a nitpick. I I think this cover is fantastic. Yeah, the Two-Face thing, I'm right there with you. It feels like the sort of where you draw a picture and you cut it in half and you like mix and match different sides where you like yeah. paste them together where they really aren't supposed to be there. But yeah, I, I, I'm there with you. I really like the cover, aside from the fact that the Riddler looks like he's got Rankin-Bass face. This is something I would see on the shelf and I would pick up based on the cover alone. The villain's glaring at you, Batman just silhouetted. It works for me. Even if it is just a movie tie-in, it works for me. I remember seeing this cover on the stands at the Superfresh in Trexlertown, Pennsylvania, and knowing that it had to be mine. It is such a stunning piece of art that encapsulates you know, how awesome Batman's villains are. Brian Bolland is... For not doing as much Batman art as others, like you know Norm Brayfogle or Jim Aparo or uh, the artist supposedly known as Bob Kane, he has all of these fantastic images. And you have the Riddler, who does not look silly, but he's got a bit of a paunch to him. I mean, that looks like clothing. And Two Face, just you know, he's got this like very dead serious look. He's looking dapper, but half of his face is all tango uniform. And there's the penguin looking very regal. So with that, with the bat shadow on the back and the red background, it just combines for this beautiful image that literally I saw across the grocery store. And it kind of pulled me along like I was a cartoon. And I just had to have this. And I think I had to beg for extra money because I didn't have any on me that day. But now, love this cover. Love it to death. Secret Origins Special Number 1 has a $2 cover price and a general 1989 cover date. It was actually published on August 15th that year, between the release of issues 44 and 45, and notably, 27 years ago to the day that this episode of Secret Origins Podcast is being released. Pretty cool, huh? The 64-page comic includes three origin stories set up by a framing narrative that acts as introduction, interlude, and epilogue. On this episode, you will hear me synopsize the framing sequences by myself. When I get to the first origin story, Michael Bailey and I will break it down like a normal episode. Then I'll do the framing sequence on my own again and repeat. After we've completed our discussion of this issue, you'll hear from all of my guests again as they answer a few more questions about Batman and the nature of his enemies. And all of that is going to begin right after a short promotional break. Don't go away.
My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www. Viewsfromthelongbox.com The framing story is called Original Sins. It's written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Mike Hoffman, inked by Kevin Nolan, lettered by Todd Klein, and colored by Tom McCraw. It begins with Batman hanging from the side of a tall building, opening the window, and sneaking into the hotel room of a man named Steve Jones. Batman turns on the light, rousing Steve out of his sleep. The Dark Knight says he knows why Steve is in Gotham, and he does not approve of this project. It's misguided and dangerous. Despite being woken in the middle of the night by a stranger dressed like a bat standing in his hotel room telling him to get out of town, Steve shows a surprising degree of self-assurance. Sure, it's dangerous, Steve tells the Batman, for you. You've fostered the idea that these people are just criminals, lunatics. You've never let them tell their stories. Batman gives Steve one last warning, not to pursue this project. If he does, he's entering a world of trouble. Steve says, you don't scare me. And Batman says, deuces, I'm out of here. Okay, really, Batman says, it's too bad Steve doesn't take him seriously. Then he slips out of the window again and swings away into the night. The next day, Steve meets with his production team in his office. If it wasn't clear yet, Steve Jones is a Geraldo Rivera-type investigative reporter doing a special on the colorful criminals of Gotham City titled, The Men That Made the Batman Mad. Wow, I can't imagine why Batman would object to a program like that. Steve's team is made up of his research assistant, Kathy, his producer, Helene, and his cameraman, Nat. He tells them about Batman's nocturnal visit and warning. Helene is concerned, but Nat is fascinating, asking his boss what Batman was like in person. He's a tall guy, Steve recounts. You can't see his eyes, and it's weird. That cloak screws your mind up, like he's standing in a patch of darkness. Cold voice, sort of whispery. Steve wants to change the subject, so he asks his assistant Kathy how she's coming on booking guests for the special. 
Kathy says they've had trouble booking the actual criminals. Dr. Chilton won't let them film inside Arkham Asylum after 60 Minutes did a hatchet job on the place, even when she promised that their spin on the inmates would be positive. Hmm. I wonder if that's Dr. Frederick Chilton, formerly of the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Look it up if you don't know who I'm talking about. Kathy has secured interviews with Grace Dent, the wife of Harvey Dent, also known as Two-Face, and a henchman named O'Rourke, who used to work for the Penguin. There's also some guy named the Riddler who wants to be on their show, but none of Steve's staff have ever heard of the Riddler before. The Scarecrow is very interested in appearing on TV, but not as part of Steve's special report. Dr. Crane just wants to give a televised lecture about fear responses to support his latest thesis. None of this sounds very impressive to Steve. He doesn't want to settle for henchmen and spouses and has-beens. He wants to land an ace, or rather, a joker. Kathy says she's put out word on the street that they want to interview the Joker, but so far, there hasn't been any evidence that the Joker is even alive. The last anyone saw of him was when his helicopter crashed in the harbor after he threatened the United Nations in Batman issue 429, the final part of A Death in the Family, published about nine months earlier. Steve tells her to keep digging and dismisses the others so they can go prep for the interview with O'Rourke. He holds Kathy back for a minute, and we discover that the two of them have been sleeping together. In fact, she was sleeping in his bed last night when Batman stopped by. They go to the studio to film the segment with Knuckles O'Rourke. The set is decorated with colorful umbrellas, and the zoo even delivered a live penguin. Nat's having trouble keeping the penguin in the shot he needs, so he asks Kathy to hold the penguin so he can frame it and pan over to Steve Jones and Knuckles. When Kathy picks up the bird, it pecks her hand, drawing blood. She screams in pain. Knuckles says, Hooey, those little birds sure got sharp beaks. That was what I was going to tell you about about those birds, and about how Mr. Cobblepot got to be the penguin, and what happened to Sharky. And with that, we transition to the secret origin of the penguin. Have you seen the well-to-do up on Lenox Avenue? On that famous thoroughfare with their noses in the air High hats and narrow collars, white spats and fifteen dollars Spending every dime on a wonderful time If you're blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go where Harlem flits? Putting on the Ritz Spangled gowns upon the bevy of high browns from down the levee All misfits are putting on the Ritz And that's where each and every Lulu Bell goes Every Thursday evening with her swell bows Rubbing elbows, come with me and we'll attend the Jubilee And see them spin their last two bits Putting on the Ritz All right, you already heard my first guest earlier this episode, but I'm excited to have him join me to talk about the Penguin. He's the host of Views from the Long Box and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Please welcome Mr. Michael Bailey back to the show. How are you, buddy? 
Uh, I am doing fantastic. I was so excited that the check cleared and that you let me be on this episode. It's uh, it, it means a lot to me. Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, heck, I think I asked you to be part of this episode back when you had a Batman-dedicated <laughs> podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah before I folded that into everything else I do on views just because it makes more sense and I have to deal with less feeds and stuff like that. But there are like 24 episodes of Bailey's Batman podcast still out there to listen to and download. You can find it on iTunes, over at the site, everything. So uh, you can hear the most disjointed and lack of focused Batman podcast ever. <laughs> and you are still planning to do some semi-regular Batman episodes on views, correct? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny, too, because something that I have in the pipeline that I just have to get around to editing was uh, Andy Leyland and I took a look at all of the year one annuals that came out in 1995 for the Batman villains and for Robin. Uh, we skipped Catwoman because, my God, that thing was terrible. Uh, and, and no offense to the creators involved. It just wasn't, you know, when you read all the other ones, it's just like it just didn't hold up. And the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, not to jump ahead, but Pat Broderick does the artwork for the um, Two-Face story in here. And that matches really nicely with the Chris Sprouse artwork that would be in Batman Annual number 15, hmm. which would come out a year after this. Yep, yep. Uh, so we talk about, we. I threw that in because it was just so good. And Andy and I loved that story so much that we just, you know, even though it's not part of year one, uh, we're like, no, nah, we're going to talk about this anyways. It's an origin story. Screw it. And, you know, when it's your show, you get to decide things like that. So <laughs> You'll hear me talking about that annual a little bit later on this episode. Very good. Good. Moving on back to the Penguin, do you remember when or how you first encountered the character? Television series, the 60s series, definitely. That and a combination of that and when I was a little kid, I've told this story before, but what the heck, you know, this is somebody's first time. When I was a little kid, there was a show called The New Scooby-Doo Movies. And it was such an odd iteration of Scooby-Doo because instead of having, you know, the, the straight-laced guy with the pothead and the two hot chicks hanging out with them and a dog solving crimes, they did that but with special guests like the Harlem Globetrotters, Sonny and Cher, Jerry Reed, Jerry Reed. <laughs> Eastbound and down Jerry Reed was teamed up with the Scooby gang but the one, I swear to God, every day I would watch that cartoon and I would sit there on the edge of my chair or I'd be leaning like closer to the TV and my mom would come in and yell at me and tell me I'm going to go blind. It wasn't the first time or last time she would say that in my lifetime. <laughs> I would wait to see if it was the Batman episode because when I was a kid, it's the deep, dark secret. I was a Batman fan before I was a Superman fan. Mm -hmm. And then I went from Old Testament to New Testament. So you can <laughs> draw your parallels there. But I would always wait for it, and one of them had the Joker and the Penguin as the bad guys. So when you combine that with the Batman 66, as it's now called, I just call it the Batman television series, and the fact that he was part of the superpowers that I had, the Penguin was always important to me, just because he was always around. I'm getting this vision of a young you watching TV and seeing the Harlem Globetrotters come on the television and just, like, screaming to the heavens. <laughs> Son of a bitch! What did you say? <laughs> Shut up, Mom! I got this! Yeah. Never happened. <laughs> um, I think I, I would have discovered him pretty much the same way, and I think it was... I discovered a lot of that. I knew, I knew who it was from the cartoons, but I felt like 
so much of it came in that 1989 year when the when the first movie came out because mm-hmm. every it felt like every channel was showing reruns of the 66 TV show and seeing Burgess Meredith's portrayal of the character and somebody did a whammy on my head i think it was my, my older brother when he explained that Burgess Meredith was the penguin Mickey from Rocky mm-hmm. and the voice of Galobulus in the G.I. Joe movie. Galobulus. <laughs> and that like freaked me out that it was all the same character. And, <laughs> and, and I remember, I think when he died, uh, yeah, John Stewart made a joke or something on The Daily Show that at the time of his death, Burgess Meredith had been old longer than any other actor in Hollywood. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he's one of those actors that has just ingratiated himself into so much of the pop culture. You know, let's let's take aside Batman and Rocky, for example. And Rocky, I mean, no one's going to love you like Mickey loves you. <laughs> you know, he's going to make you eat lightning, he's going to make you crap thunder. But he was also in some of the best episodes of The Twilight Zone. And later on in the 90s, he was the irascible grandfather on the movies with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. The Grumpy Old Men movies, yeah. The Grumpy Old Men movies where he had some of the most blue dialogue. I know, that freaked me out. But he was so funny. He was just he was just an amazing actor. And, and it's kind of funny when you think about that. One of the signature things about the Penguin on the television series is the wah, 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 wah. And that's because, and a lot of people probably already know this, but that was because Burgess Meredith had recently quit smoking, and he had to have that, you know, that that cigarette holder and a lit cigarette because I guess this is before they had cigarettes with cabbage in them, which I hear is how they do that sometimes now. And the smoke would get into his nose, and it would tickle his throat. So instead of like having a coughing fit, it just went into wah, wah, and it just and suddenly, bam signature sound coming from a pivotal character. I mean, he, Jim Moon of the uh, Hypnobobs podcast, you know, I think called him one of the big four. And the Penguin was because of that, because of how many episodes he was on. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just love this character. I remember when seeing, you know, Batman Returns a few years later, being a little disappointed in, yeah, in their portrayal of the character. And I was fascinated by that interpretation. It was like, wow, this is really weird and dark. But part of it was like, this isn't the Penguin that I like. And I remember hearing at the time, I was like, oh, Danny DeVito, perfect casting. Mm-hmm. I was like, why does he look like that? <laughs> well, it's like, it's like one of those things where uh, be careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. you'll get it. Do not let a director or a writer or a creator of any kind who is resistant to doing something, don't let them do something with the promise you can do whatever you want because then you get Batman Returns, which is a perfectly viable Tim Burton film and is a pretty lousy Batman film. Let all the hate mail come in. I know that a lot of people disagree with me on that. But, you know, it's to the point where I'm like Batman Forever as a Batman film is better than Batman Returns. And most people hate Batman Forever. So it's just kind of funny, but he, it's like one of those weird things where Tim Burton, you know, and and you remember this probably as well in 1989 and 1992, it's like, this is nothing like the television series. Oh, no, that was part of the marketing strategy. They were deliberately distancing themselves from the television series. And yet they take a plot right out of the television series for the (laughs) Penguin story. Yeah. And by the way, you watch those now. Man, we watched, my wife and I, back when uh, BBS was about to come out, I, I popped all the 90s movies into the Blu-ray player to watch it. And it's amazing to me now, 
in 2016 that the Batman movie from 1989 looks like now what the Batman television series looked like to us back in 1989. It's good. It's fun. But it is so hyper-stylized. Yeah. And it looks like a Comic-Con film, which is a reason why I like it. But at the same time, when we were kids, you know, when I was 13 and that film came out, it was the darkest thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) And now I watch it, I'm like, (laughs) I guess my third major, like, memory or impression of the character was early on I got the action figure of him. And... I want to say it was the Superpowers toy, but I'm actually thinking now it might have been the Toy Biz remake of I'm it. So sorry. But all I really remember of it is you could hurt somebody if you threw that penguin toy at him because that thing was basically a softball with little mini legs. Well, it, it, it's funny because of all the Superpowers figures, it's one of the ones that stands out because it's such a distinctive mold. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking at Superman and I'm looking at Batman right now up on my shell, on my hutch. And really, if you pop their heads off and just scraped the fins off of Batman's gloves, it's kind of the same figure. Uh, at least, you know, like the waist and all of that. So it's just one of those things with that bulbous belly that he had and the top hat and the umbrella and everything that came with it. It's just one of those distinctive things. And I really, at some point, need to get my hands on the one from Batman Returns because it's the superpower sculpt, but just black. Yeah, you repaint it as black with like a red cummerbund and red bow tie. And it looks so smooth. Yeah. Like, wow, yeah, that's the penguin right there. So I, I just think, you know, the penguin, no matter where you see him, he is always pretty much. Except when he's standing maybe around the other rogues, he's the most distinctive thing on the page. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, if if you're going to give him that man Oswald needs to cut down on the carbs belly, or if you just make him, like, thicker, like, you know, in the 40s when you look at those stories, he's heavy set, but he's not, you know, pretty hot and tempting. You know, he's not fat. So I, I think he got into the Bronze Age especially. He just got that distinctive... Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, look that later on, especially in the 90s, when Chuck Dixon made him more of a crime boss, mm-hmm. you know, I thought he just looked so much better there. Yeah. All right, speaking of that, let's segue into the publication history for the character. The Penguin debuted in Detective Comics issue 58, published way back in late 1941. Depending on who you ask, his creation was the brainchild of writer Bill Finger, or artist Bob Kane, or inker-slash-other artist Jerry Robinson, or some combination of the three. Whoever came up with the idea for the Penguin must have done something right, because he quickly became one of Batman's most popular villains, second only to the Joker in number of Golden Age appearances. In fact, between issues of Batman, Detective Comics, and World's Finest, the Penguin averaged three or four appearances per year throughout the 1940s. The Penguin's popularity dropped off in the 1950s when Batman engaged in fewer pure crime-related stories. But he came back strong in the 1960s, buoyed by his frequent appearances on the Batman television show, where he was portrayed, as we said, by actor Burgess Meredith. While he continued to pop up fairly regularly in Batman-related comics throughout the 70s and 80s, Penguin expanded his presence to include appearances in Justice League of America, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, Super Friends, and The Brave and the Bold. 
After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Penguin appeared in the second story of Batman Annual Number 11, written by Max Allen Collins, with art by Norm Brayfogle, actually Brayfogle's first work on a Batman story. After that, Penguin popped up in early issues of Suicide Squad. In 1992, Danny DeVito played a version of the Penguin in the film Batman Returns. Since then, the character, like so many Batman villains, has appeared in countless comics, cartoons, video games, and other merchandise. Prior to the Flashpoint event, the Penguin's status was slightly shifted so as to make him look like a legitimate businessman running a club called the Iceberg Lounge. Rather than taking on bird-themed heists, the Penguin has, since the late 1990s, has become more or less the face of non-powered organized crime in Gotham City. I know I left a whole lot out of that publication history, but was there any specific stories or appearances that you think merit attention? It's not so much that there's any specific stories. It's just I always like to mention uh, when talking about his first appearance that he turns his own gang in at the end of the story. (laughs) And it's just so right away you know this guy's a scumbag. (laughs) Uh, And I love the fact that he is playing. You know, we we, we talked about cross-pollination of pop culture. Think about the guy that wrote such, like, the music for Muppet Christmas Carol. You know, those songs that kind of get stuck into your head. Mm -hmm. Or old-fashioned love song. Paul Williams was the voice of the Penguin on the animated series. God, I forgot about that. And it's just, it's just like, every time I watch the thing, the the animated series, I'm like, it's the Muppet guy, yay! (laughs) And then I know he's got, like, this fantastic career and Phantom of the Paradise and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, the Penguin seems to attract when he is portrayed by somebody top-tier talent. I mean, one of, you know, to get Rob's attention, uh, what's his name from MASH, uh, who was the Martian Manhunter on that awful Justice League pilot, uh, whose name I just is escaping me, but uh, was the voice of the Penguin on The Mystery of the Batwoman, and he brought, like, kind of a, a dignified approach to the character. So I, I just think, I just think outside of Ninja Penguin from The Batman which was that series that was on before Batman Brave and the Bold, but after the Bruce Timm stuff wrapped up. I just think he has had such a fantastic career outside of the comics. So, All right, let's get into the story then. The Killing Peck is written by Alan Grant with art by Sam Keith, letters by Albert de Guzman, and colors by Tom McCraw. It opens with a quote from William Shakespeare's comedy, As You Like It. And so, from hour to hour, we ripe and ripe. And then, from hour to hour, we rot and rot, and thereby hangs a tale. Throughout the story, there will be numerous Shakespeare quotes, either taken directly or paraphrased. The story begins with a truck driving along a desolate road late one night. A pair of owls observe the truck before taking flight and abruptly flying right into the windshield, showering the driver and passenger with broken glass. The truck crashes, and the driver is thrown violently from the cab. The passenger climbs out of the wreck. He barely has time to register that the driver is dead before he feels the barrel of a gun pressed against his temple. Then the gun goes off, killing him. The murderer tends to the dead owls, calling them friends and thanking them for their sacrifice. Meanwhile, a voice calls out from the back of the truck, wanting an explanation. It's now clear that the truck was a prisoner transport, and the driver and passenger were police guards. An acetylene torch burns a hole in the back of the truck. The prisoner steps out into the night, expecting to be greeted by members of his crew. Instead, he gets the tip of an umbrella shoved in his face, an umbrella that sprays him with a noxious-looking gas that knocks him unconscious. The prisoner, 
well, escaped prisoner, whose name is Sharky, wakes up in a different kind of captivity. The penguin has captured him, stripped him, and tied him up. Oh, and it seems the penguin and Sharky have a history together, and not a very pleasant one. The penguin orders his henchman Knuckles to open Sharky's mouth. Sharky nearly bites Knuckles' fingers off, revealing his teeth are all jagged metal, making him more like a shark, I guess, if sharks had metal teeth. Penguin angrily shocks Sharky with the electrified tip of his umbrella, and warns his captive that if he tries to bite down again, he'll fry those metal teeth. Knuckles forces Sharky's mouth open, and the penguin begins to force-feed the man fish while explaining why he's torturing the man. It seems that Sharky went to school with young Oswald Cobblepot, and the fact that he became a criminal with metal teeth was not totally surprising based on how he used to torture Oswald. He forced the smaller boy to eat fish by smashing his face onto the plate, he stole the umbrella that Oswald's worrying mother made him take to school, and then beat him up with it, and he called Oswald names like Fatso, Birdbeak, and Penguin. Sharky was the first person to call him Penguin. Young Oswald, who'd grown accustomed to bullying, sought refuge in books and birds. Yes, little Penguin spent his free time in a pet store called Birds and Stuff. Grown-up Penguin tells Sharky that he's grateful for every horrible, traumatic lesson the bully ever taught him. But, rather than expressing this gratitude with a friendly night on the town, Penguin continues to torture him. Knuckles worries that the boss is drawing his revenge out way too long, and every second they spend torturing Sharky increases the chances of Batman catching up with them. Speaking of which, at about that time, Commissioner Gordon tells Batman and Batman's cape that the guards transferring Sharky from Chicago haven't called in. Gordon suspects Sharky's gang may have sprung him and asks the cape crusader for help finding the prison truck. Back at Penguin's hideout, Knuckles is force-feeding sardines to Sharky while Penguin recounts more examples of his torment in grade school. At one costume party, Sharky forced little Oswald to strip off his Hamlet costume and put on the tuxedo and top hat of another boy. This was the birth of Penguin's signature look. That day, young Oswald went back to the pet store and watched the hatching of a small, disfigured bird. Oswald noted how every species has its runts, constantly picked on or pecked at by the bigger and the stronger. But something astonishing happens at the pet store. The little bird, cornered and threatened by the larger hatchlings, snaps back at its attackers. Oswald was inspired to take up physical fitness and martial arts. He trained in secret for months until he was ready to face little Sharky. As grown-up Penguin shoves caviar down Sharky's throat, he recalls the day he beat Sharky in hand-to-hand combat. He thought he had slain the dragon, that the bullying would stop. But the next time Oswald returned to birds and stuff, he discovered that Sharky had murdered all of the birds in the store. Back in the present, Batman in his cape discover the wrecked prison truck. He finds the dead guards and the dead owls, from which he concludes that the penguin sprung Sharky, only Batman doesn't know why. Meanwhile, the Penguin has let us know why, explaining that right after Sharky killed his birds, the bully's family moved to Chicago. Ever since then, Oswald Cobblepot has craved his revenge. He grew up, turned to crime, and embraced the Penguin moniker Sharky had given him all those years ago. But he never stopped hating the bully for all of the pain and misery he caused. Now, with Sharky stuffed full of fish, sardines, and caviar, the penguin uses the acetylene torch on his umbrella to weld Sharky's metal teeth together. 
Penguin and Knuckles drag Sharky out of their hideout, which turns out was the back room in the Gotham Zoo. On a hunch, Batman investigates the zoo as a possible hideout, and when he pulls up in the Batmobile, he finds a dead guard outside, confirming his suspicions. Batman races through the zoo, finally shining his headlights on Penguin, Knuckles, and Sharky at the edge of the tiger pen. Batman takes out Knuckles, but the Penguin throws Sharky into the tiger's pen. Batman must let Penguin escape so he can save Sharky, who is now so stuffed with fish he's an irresistible appetizer for the tigers. Batman swings into the cage and scoops up Sharky before the tigers tear him to shreds. But Sharky is also covered in fish oil and Batman drops him. Sharky hits the ground unconscious. Batman picks him up and carries him away, still not knowing why the Penguin was after him or what this was all about. And thus ends the secret origin of the Penguin. So, Michael, what did you think of this story? First up, Sam Keith's art is amazing. I'm not usually a big fan of his style, and I remember that there were some covers from around Nightfall that I did not care for, but for this story, it's like the perfect artistic representation uh, to go with what Alan Grant is laying down. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. I, I think at this point, Sam Keith is probably now more associated with the Max, mm-hmm. thanks to the animated series and everything from the 90s. But I, I think he does a great Batman. He does a fantastic Penguin. It's just such a the cartoony style to it uh, with, with kind of such rough edges around it. It's just like, God, it's so moody. It's just yeah. a fantastic. There were a few instances of it, but I always like if if you have to take the most sort of extreme, exaggerated, stylistic version of the Batman, I always liked this version more than something like Kelly Jones. And I mm-hmm. I, I liked Kelly Jones enough at the time, but I think Sam Keith's version in this is a lot better. So yeah, they they both have like that fifty mile cape though. So <laughs> yeah, they, they have do. that going for it. One of the things about this story that has stuck with me since I first read it. I, you know, I'm a chunky adult, but I was a chunky kid. Starting around 12, I just put on some extra weight. And since kids are so understanding about such things, <laughs> uh, I never got picked on, which is not true at all. I got picked on a lot, actually. Uh, I was never shoved into a locker. I was never beaten up. Uh, you know, I had like a couple bad experiences, but nothing that, you know, nothing to write an after school special about. But, you know, I still felt kind of like I was one of the oddballs. I'm short, heavy set. I'm not as strong as everybody else. If people did decide to kick my ass, they'd probably have a pretty good chance of doing it. So, you know, I'm reading a story where the penguin is picked on horribly by Sharky. I mean, he's shoving food down his throat. He's making him put on ill-fitting clothes and then laughing at him about it. But here's this dude... He starts working out, he starts learning martial arts, and one day delivers a serious red-ass beatdown to his abuser. I mean, I just love it. Uh, That one page where, you know, he goes, I've taken all I'm ever going to take from you, Sharky. Defend yourself. And this is great two pages of Sharky going, what are you going to do, bird bee? Peck my mouth to death? And then punches him and a tooth flies out. (laughs) And it's just, he just, he just beats Sharky like Sharky owes him money. Mm. 
And then, you know, it should be like the highest of high. He got revenge on his bully. And I know that bullying is, you know, a, a real hot button issue these days. And I know a lot of people say we need to talk things out with the bully. We need to figure out what's going on. Why are they picking on the kids? But, you know, when you're in that situation, you don't want to talk your way out of it. You just want to get your self-respect back. Mm-hmm. And he does that. And then Sharky kills all of the birds in his, you know, in that shop. And, you know, one that, you know, kind of points to the fact that Sharky is more than just a bully. He's a sociopath. Right. Uh, you know, there, there's certain, there's that scale of telling you if you're going to become a serial killer or and not. One of them is violence against animals. Animals when you're a young kid. So, but it teaches Penguin this lesson. And what I love about the Penguin in this story is that he is not, a silly figure. He still has like all the accoutrements of being a pe- being the penguin, but he is all business and he doesn't care that Batman is coming because he is so laser focused on getting his final revenge that, you know, it's just like everything is falling into place for him and just it's like, well boss, the Batman's coming. Yes, yes, I know. We've got time. Because he knows his uh, his nemesis. He knows how long it's going to take for Commissioner Gordon to get in touch with Batman, Batman to get on the trail. So, And he doesn't care if Batman saves Sharky. Batman doesn't save Sharky, Penguin's fine, you know. But in the end, in addition to kind of telling, like, his origin, we get, like, little things. Like, his dad died of pneumonia. Mm. So his mother constantly made him carry an umbrella just in case it ever rained. That's a serious psychological component to somebody. And I'm, I want to say that came up in a later story. There was some exploration of the penguin and his mother. Like his mother had one of those, and forgive me, I'm forgetting the name of the condition, but it's like a psychological condition where you like, you're sort of overprotective of your children to the point of almost smothering. Uh, I can't think of it, but I think that story yeah. came up. The, the Penguin miniseries that came out right at the beginning of the New 52, it was like Pain and Prejudice or something yeah. like that, had a serious mother component to it because he was taking care of his mother because his mother was sick. And it's, it, it was like it actually really cast the Penguin in a sympathetic light. So it was kind of interesting on that level. But, yeah, I mean, even, even when I only watched like the first couple issue, episodes of Gotham, but when they showed Oswald's mother played by if you're going to have somebody play your batshit crazy mother Carol Kane is always the one you want to go to <laughs> cuz she's just she just exudes that anyways so but you know between that and having um Paul Rubens play his father it's just like you couldn't go more perfect mm-hmm. uh with the penguin on that show but it's just you know just just that whole he was kind of screwed from the beginning and I know that The Killing Joke and The Killing Peck, which is just a brilliant name for a story, Alan Grant, one of the best Batman writers ever, you know, he's not making fun of Alan Moore, but that just felt like he was having a little fun with the title. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, okay, you've got your Joker origin, I've got this. But, you know, The Joker and The Killing Joke talks about it's all one bad day. Right. And I think, really and truly, all of the stories in this, in this volume kind of point to the fact that that's not true at all. It's a combination of, you know, upbringing and abuse, you know, whether that's from a parent or from a bully 
and just everything kind of twists these people, and instead of doing something to better humanity, they decide to turn that energy into making themselves criminals. Well, Batman even has a line at some point in the story. He says, I always wonder why somebody like the Penguin, who could be successful at anything he puts his mind to, Mm -hmm. chooses this life. And it's kind of funny that by the end of the story... Batman is completely in the dark. Batman doesn't understand the Penguin. He doesn't know this history. He doesn't know what this was all about. He he did not get to witness what we as the reader did. And the Penguin was always different from his other villains. The Penguin should never be at Arkham. Right. Because the Penguin's not crazy. The Penguin knows exactly what he's doing. That's why during the Englehart Rogers run, I loved the fact that he was putting Gen Pop uh, and, you know, has that, you know, his... his, his uh, roommate was dead shot just to introduce the next story. But I like that when the Penguin goes to jail, he goes to Blackgate, for, for lack of a better. He doesn't go to Arkham because he doesn't belong there. Getting back to what you were saying with the, the develop when he goes through his whole like martial arts fitness routine, I, I don't know why, but when I got to that page, the, it felt like Grant was taking a page out of Frank Miller's version of Kingpin. Mm-hmm. Like, this felt like a very Wilson Fisk thing to do. Okay, we have this very unassuming, sort of dopey, heavyset-looking character, but secretly we're going to, like, say that a lot of this is, like, muscle mass that's just disguised as fat, uh, and that he's actually a good fighter. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like that might have been a little bit of uh, Miller's version of Kingpin seeping into the story. But I'm okay with that, because, again, a- I, I like the idea that he's not so much fat, he's just thick Mm -hmm. and he's somebody that can take care of himself physically and really when you think of the criminal circles he runs in i mean let's let's go back to prison for a second this man's got to take care of himself Mm -hmm. because if he was just a fat guy his existence would be very very different but the idea here that he works out uh you know he plays squash on the weekends his heart races oh wait that's from that car 54 movie i apologize (laughs) but here you know you know doing the martial arts He's short and heavy, so a kicking form, probably not his best. I would say he'd probably be better with, like, jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. or aikido or something where, you know, he could use his own center of mass. Because if you're heavy, you've got a better center of gravity than somebody who, who isn't as heavy. And you can use your own, your, your more of using your opponent's weight and inertia against them. Boxing would be good for him, but he's got short, stubby arms, so he's really going to want to work in close. I can't believe I'm breaking down the Penguin's fighting style. <laughs> uh, I apologize for that. But no, it was, just, it was just something I was thinking of because the way Keith draws him, like doing the weights, mm-hmm. his arms are really short. And as somebody who has incredibly short arms, I know you can't, you can't outreach your opponent. You've got to get in there and work the body. So that's why I like when he and Batman fight he uses that umbrella as an offensive weapon because it gives him reach. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I like the idea of a physically formidable penguin, which is why when that rumor was going around that maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman would play him, I'm like, that's freaking perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, just cut a you know, get him in a little better shape than he was like in Boogie Nights, and that man could do it. I just, uh, but yeah, I'll totally agree with you that it's a little, it's a little kingpinish. But I think some of the best villain moments of DC in the post-crisis era is when some of the villains took a kingpin turn. Yeah. So, there you go. Next question. 
Birds and Stuff? <laughs> is that the best name for a store ever or the worst name? I'm not sure which one. I'm also not sure it's not both at the same time. Um, I, I just get the feeling that when the guy came to do the stenciling for the glass, <laughs> he was getting paid by the letter. <laughs> so they, they knew they needed birds. But Penguin's dad, who is cheap, he didn't carry an umbrella. Obviously, he's cheap. Uh, you know, he's just like, just put in stuff. It's fine. Don't even write and. A and D are extra money there. So just, just write in stuff. So, yeah, not, not, the, uh, not the greatest of, sh- of store names. I, I just want to know what else besides birds, then. Like, what does the and stuff imply? <laughs> They've got a thriving Beanie Baby uh, <laughs> business in the back. It's it really hasn't done anything since 1999. Sadly, not. but but it was it was it was like the shiz did for a little while there. Those things are all cyclical. It's going to come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Sharky and his fate in the story. I'm kind of torn with whether or not I think Sharky should have died in the story. Because on the one hand, I like that Batman gets to do what Batman should do, which is save the guy. Even though he's a scum and a criminal and you could make the case that he deserves to die. Certainly the Penguin is making the case he deserves to die. But Batman saves him because that's what Batman does. But at the same time, this isn't Batman's story. Is the Penguin's revenge cheapened if he doesn't die? Or did Penguin still get exactly what he wanted? Penguin still got exactly what he wanted because the Penguin ultimately humiliated him. That's why I said before, whether or not Sharky dies doesn't matter at this point. Because Sharky now, for the rest of his life, has to live with the fact that the guy that he picked on, that beat him up, but he thought he got his final revenge, thoroughly and completely humiliated him. He he stripped him of his... I mean, let's look. You know, he's wearing boxer shorts. Mm-hmm. If this wasn't a code-approved book... <laughs> yeah, he would be naked. He'd be naked because you do that because it, it puts... It makes your... It makes the person feel like they are completely powerless. He shoves caviar down his throat. I've never had caviar, so I don't know how it tastes. But I can't think that... You know, in a dingy in a dingy room, that somebody's shoving fish eggs down your your throat would be the best. And and that and the little like you know like um, anchovies or whatever else he's yeah, the feeding sardines, him. the fish. Yeah, yeah. And you know, think about you know he's tied up and then thrown in with tigers, thinking he's about to die. It's a good thing he's in water, or Batman would have a stinky Batmobile. <laughs> uh, you know, driving this guy to the hospital. You know, Sharky's life is is over. Mm-hmm. And if the Penguin's smart, and the Penguin in this story is very smart, he put the word out on, on Sharky to the criminal underworld. So now no one's going to trust him. No one's going to touch him. And if he goes back to jail, Sharky is everybody's bitch. Right. Oh, and even, like, the, the metal teeth being welded together yeah. or soldered together. Okay, like, that doesn't come apart easily. Like, those are removed. So yeah. he's going to prison without any teeth, and there are people who are going to make use of that. It's I'm just saying, he is better off dead at the end of this story. Batman did not do him any favors by taking him to the hospital. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure, but I think, yeah, you convinced me. What else? Any other thoughts about the story? I just like how Alan Grant writes Batman. Me too. Just the inner thoughts. I mean, Batman doesn't get a whole lot of screen time, because it's not his story. It's the Penguin story. But I love 
you know, how terse even his thoughts are. You know, some of his stories could get really preachy and Batman thinking, you know, like, you know, flowery thoughts. But here it's just like, you know, owl feathers, windshield glass. Why does a bird take a fish? <laughs> I mean, it's just you could almost hear Adam West saying that, but you can also hear Kevin Conroy saying that. So uh, I also like that Sam Keith draws the best Batman's been up for six days and hasn't shaved look with the stubble. Yeah, the stubble. I don't like his Batmobile, um, but his Commissioner Gordon's really good, too. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a little Brayfogel in there, but he's got that Sam Keith, like, weird flippy hair thing. I don't know if they get that with gel, whatever, but, uh, you know, it's distinctive, but still very familiar at the same time. It's like a reverse gravity spit curl. Yeah, it's like, what the hell is going it's on like with that dude's hair? It's like a bang cowlick or something. <laughs> I just love this story. I, I yeah. It's why I asked for it, because it's one of those things where it touches you not just as like, oh, this is a cool story, but it makes you empathize with the character more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, the Penguin is theoretically one of the few, you know, even going to the gym as I am trying to do right now, the Penguin is theoretically one of the few characters that I could body type cosplay as. So it's just, I, I feel like this serious connection to him, more so than any other of the other Batman villains. I, I agree with that, and I really like this story. It's one of the best Penguin stories I've ever read, and it kind of says something, because I think as as popular as the character is, when I started thinking about recommended readings, I was kind of hard-pressed to come up with a signature Penguin story. Like, for me, there's a three-parter that was published about a year after this called The Penguin Affair. Mm -hmm. Um, It was co-plotted by Marv Wolfman and Alan Grant, uh, Marv Wolfman wrote the two chapters that were in Batman, I think 448 and 449. Uh, the art on one of them was by Jim Aparo. The art in the other one, I want to say, is by Mark Bright. And then Norm Brayfogel did the uh, Detective Comics chapter. And it's a fun story. It's a cool story. It, I think it introduced the character of Harold that became kind of mm-hmm. part of Batman's uh, supporting cast in that, that era. But it didn't have the punch that this one had. And I'm trying to think of like other great Penguin stories. Like, what did you have in terms of recommended readings for somebody else? You mentioned earlier in this the Batman Annual number eleven, and that's another mm. book that will always mean something to me because right when I was right when I was starting to collect the Superman titles, that very month Batman Annual eleven came out, and I and I and I remember getting it and just liking the penguin story because it's the penguin in love Mm -hmm. and he gets out of prison thanks to this woman and and batman and robin think that he's just completely snowed this woman that he's fooling her but he's really in love with her and she's really in love with him and when he gets sent back to prison because he's associating with known criminals which goes against his parole you feel bad for him like in the beginning of the story batman's arguing to keep him in jail and then at the end of the story, he's arguing to keep him out of jail. And it's this great little mirror where he comes out of the parole board with the same expression <laughs> and the same like anger at them because they're idiots, mm-hmm. because they won't listen to him. But the Penguin was great in that. I will definitely recommend Detective Comics number 473, 
the Malay or however you say that penguin. It is the it's part of the Englehart Rogers run. Probably one of the best versions of the penguin ever. If you ever are back issue diving, look for Detective Comics number six eighty three and six eighty four. This is where the penguin was reborn under the auspices of Chuck Dixon. And he is one of the best parts of Batman No Man's Land because he's like the guy you go to to get stuff in Gotham City. Uh, and if, if you can, and it's not all that expensive, go on eBay and try to find the Greatest Batman Stories Volume 2, uh, which came out in 1992 and is mostly Penguin and Catwoman stories. Uh, because it was coming out the same right. year Batman Returns. This just, just makes sense. But there's uh, there's Penguin's like first appearance and a lot of like a really good sampling of him throughout the years in the comics up until 1992. So I, I really recommend that as well. Yeah, those are all good. Cool. Final thoughts on the character? Thankfully, the TV show did propel him and kind of make him a, a bigger on the Batman stage than maybe he would have before. But I just think when you think of the greatest Batman villains ever, it's no coincidence that he's part of this book. Mm-hmm. You know, they've already done the Joker. The Joker got the killing joke. So they're not going to put him in Secret Origins, except he is kind of in the story, <laughs> yeah. in the issue. And I kind of like that. But, you know, when you're thinking of other villains, you know, they didn't put Raish in this. And they could have. It would have been kind of weird to shoehorn that into the narrative. <laughs> but, you know, they're not going to put Kite Man. They're not going to put... Uh, you know, the, the Cavalier or Firebug or Firefly or any of those O's. It's, it's the Penguin because he's one of the big guns. And I, I've, I've thought about this at times. I feel like the Penguin is almost like the Aquaman of supervillains. I totally agree with that. Because everybody knows him. Everybody can recognize him. He is so iconic and memorable. But I also think a lot of people underestimate him or or kind of revert to a, a sense that he's a goofy character that needs to be changed or updated or made a little bit more gritty for modern sensibilities. Because I think about Batman Returns and his portrayal in that. I think about the Penguin in the Arkham games, which I actually like, but he they basically present him as like a gangster from a Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> you know, he's, got, he's got a British accent. He's got like a limp that's basically just like a broken ankle, and that's why he waddles. Or no, that's from the, the TV show. But he's got something other than that, like a scarred eye or something. So they they're always trying to make him a little bit gruffer, a little bit like coarser and harder edged. And I feel like no, the thing about the Penguin is that he's a dandy. He wants to be high class. Yeah, there's that great episode of the animated series where he gets out of jail and he's trying to be you know, hoi polloi, Mm -hmm. and they're making fun of him. Yeah. And you feel bad for him because he's really trying his best, and he thinks he's like the slickest guy in the room. And you even get the sense that Batman feels bad for him. And the only reason he goes to stop him is just like, oh, my God, they've pushed him too far. He's going to kill these people. It's just, I, I, I got I to gotta step in now. This, is, this has gone too far. But, you know, all of the, the Penguin episodes of the, of the animated series. Even I've got Batman in my basement, which is never in anybody's top ten. I think it has a lot of heart to it. And, and just in the way he presents himself. Because you're right. He, he's somebody who thinks 
he's better than he is, but if you look at this story, if you had a mother that doted on you to the point that she constantly demanded you carry an umbrella around, you'd have an inflated sense of self. You know, like, you, you, you wonder what the penguin sees in the mirror compared to what we see of the penguin. Yeah. He's just great. How about that? <laughs> That's good. He is great. I, he is one of my favorites. I like the character, so <laughs> uh, I'm glad we got to talk about him. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick promo break, and we'll be back in a minute with another Secret Origin. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. Steve Jones and his team reconvene after the Penguin segment. Kathy confirms their scheduled interview with Two-Face's wife the next day, but says she still hasn't gotten in touch with the Joker. Steve doesn't want to rely on second-hand stories. He wants to talk to the real wackos themselves. That's where the great television is, the ratings, and possibly the awards. Kathy says she looked into Eddie Nigma, the guy who called himself the Riddler. Turned out he was a real costume criminal back in the day. He's been out of jail for a year now, managing the Finger Junkyard. Steve agrees they should talk to him, and they head over to the finger yard after lunch. And that leads us to the secret origin of the Riddler. Or does it? Riddle me this! What do you call a sleeping bull? Answer! A bulldozer! (laughs) Riddle me this! What, tell me, what, tell me, what's the difference? Between an elephant and a flea. Gee, we would sure like to know the difference between an elephant and a flea. Well, an elephant can have fleas, but a flea can't have elephants. Oh. Hey, little girl, the whole world's a riddle to the riddler. Riddle me this. What did the chick say to the other chick when the hen laid an orange instead of an egg? What did the chick say? The chick said, look at the orange marmalade. Aw, mm. oh, come on, Riddler. I puzzle you a puzzle, I quiz you a quiz. I'm gonna keep you guessing like nobody's business. I'm a whiz, and my name is the Riddler. <laughs> And now I'm joined by Mr. Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians, and we're talking about Batman's most enigmatic enemy, the Riddler. Mike, do you remember when or how you first encountered this character? It's really kind of hard to say. I know he wasn't a superpowers figure in the United States, but they just repainted Green Lantern. But I think it's got to be Frank Gorshin on the Adam West TV series. 
I mean, that's probably the first place I saw Batman and any of his characters, any of his villains. And I know the Riddler, the first time I saw it, was either there or Superpowers. And I remember just seeing this crazy, manic guy who would just leap all over the place, was always laughing, and he had this suit covered in question marks. And there's something that's really iconic about that. And it's bizarre with the Riddler is how well-recognized him and other Batman villains are to people who know nothing about the comic books. How They know who all of these people are, and it's like something about the Riddler that just seems to tap into something and I even though I really haven't read that many stories with him I recognize him and there's sort of an idea of him that everybody has right off the bat do you like the character have you ever felt like he's one of the better villains in Batman's gallery I think he's one of the most underutilized characters in the rogues gallery because I don't think that people really know what to do with him I don't think that you know how it's like you look at the Joker and you can say okay well the modern version of the Joker that everyone knows was kind of born out of the 1980s and Killing Joke in particular. This idea of this kind of chaotic, kill-crazy clown who makes everything sort of a joke. I mean, everyone sort of has sprung their version of, of the Joker off of that. I don't think the Riddler has ever had that story or that moment. So it kind of feels like Every time somebody writes a Riddler story, they're starting from scratch again. They're kind of giving him a soft reboot. So you can go anywhere from having that kind of Frank Gorshin manic craziness, or I guess you could say the Jim Carrey craziness, too. And then sometimes he's like this cold mercenary thief who just likes matching wits with the good guy. So it doesn't seem like there's a consistency to him. So I could say I really like him, but I'm always kind of curious why it doesn't feel like there is a specific Riddler that anyone really seems to pull from. So, But I do like him. I like the potential of him, I guess you could say. I agree. I kind of I feel the same way about that. And I wonder if it's... It feels like his particular gimmick, his niche, and this might be wrong, but it, to me it feels a little bit more specific than other characters. Like where you were saying earlier, like you can do... There's no shortage of different stories you can tell with the Joker. Riddler's stories feel like they have to be of a certain type. And it has to be a challenging mystery. And I think maybe one of the reasons... He he might be intimidating to some comic book writers and creators because you have to create puzzles and mysteries and riddles each time that are clever and original, hopefully, but also something that can challenge the Batman and show off how smart both of them are. And that can be tough. Uh, If a writer isn't naturally that smart, it can be uh, scary to attempt something like that. And maybe that's why, as iconic as he is, Riddler's stories in the comics were pretty few and far between for a long time. I think that's probably exactly what it is. People don't want to have to come up with that stuff because the writer has to be as smart as Batman or the Riddler. And you have to stump the reader as well as Batman. And you always kind of risk, if it's too dumb or too nonsensical, that Batman looks dumb not being able to solve it for most of the story. So I really think that he's kind of like Etrigan the Demon in that way, where a lot of people just don't want to have to write all of the dialogue in rhyme. Yeah, exactly like that, yeah. So it's better to just not have him talk or have him show up in like a prison break scene or have him do something that doesn't involve that, because it may, and like you said, he has such a specific gimmick. There's a certain way he interfaces with Batman that really relies on you to have to come up with riddles. And sometimes people just do these nonsensical, like, children's joke book riddles Mm -hmm. and then just treat him like a regular supervillain. And I think there are ways to make it really clever that make a Riddler story 
that much more interesting than the stuff that he could do with any other supervillain. And I think a lot of it is trying to figure out what this guy's motivation is. And sometimes, like I said, there's that thing that's all over the wall, that is he just this crazy person who secretly wants to get caught, or is he just this cocky and arrogant guy who just wants to prove that he's smarter than Batman? And I think that if you can nail that down in a definitive universe way, which I don't think they've ever done, you can have that basis for future Riddler stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I kind of want... I mean, the, the Riddler that I would want to read would be a lot like Walter White on Breaking Bad, where Walter is a guy who just can't not get credit for being a genius. And that arrogance is a thing that lets... It just completely undermines his ability to get, get away with his crimes. And then you have a character on Breaking Bad, Gus Fring, who has the front of running a chicken restaurant. And he's perfectly happy letting people think that he's this total anonymous guy, that he drives a non-impressive car and he is somebody who acts around in plain sight and works at a fast food restaurant as a manager. And he's secretly this drug kingpin, but nobody knows. And he's comfortable with that. And I can see Walter White or the Riddler being this guy who can't handle that. He wants everyone to know, I did this crime. I'm the one who did it. And not only that, I'm going to twist the knife a little bit and make you have to guess where I did it or how I did it. It's like I'm a magician that can't help but tell you how I did it because I want you to know that I'm smart. And I think there are ways to do it. And I think maybe my version of the Riddler is a bit like uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Did you ever see that movie? Oh, I love that. That's actually one of the first comparisons that I made was Jeremy Irons' character, Simon, in that movie. Oh, it's great because, I mean, this is a movie where Bruce Willis is led all over New York City by a criminal genius who's planted bombs all over the place and is forcing Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson to team up and actually solve a series of riddles that have a time limit to stop him from blowing all these people up. And there's one in particular where they get sent to this fountain. Yeah, that's my favorite and there's one. A, I was waiting that's my that. favorite one. I, could, I oh. forced myself to work through that trick before. when I, I think I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it like my college roommate had like the, the video or something. I think I paused it in the middle. I was like, can I figure this out before they do? And I think there's actually two ways of solving it. Oh, every time I see it, I get it when they show me how to do it, but I forget it right away. <laughs> So we could probably just explain. Basically, there's a fountain and a bomb, and if the bomb is moved, it's going to go off. If you run away, it's going to go off. You've got five minutes. Now, we need you to fill a jug with four gallons of water and put it on this weight, this like plate that has a, a scale on it, on the side of the bomb. And if you can put exactly four gallons of water on there, the bomb will diffuse. And for your tools, next to this water fountain, you have a three-gallon jug and a five-gallon jug. And if you're off by just a little bit, the bomb will go off. Good luck, everybody. Hangs up the phone. (laughs) And they actually have to do this crazy math problem with a ticking time bomb. And you find yourself trying to solve it, too. And if the Riddler was doing stuff like that, imagine just changing that movie just a little bit, making it a Batman movie, and saying that's Batman and Robin trying to figure out what they're supposed to do while the Riddler has bombs all over the city. That's how you pull it off, because that's the sort of Riddler that I want to read about, Mm -hmm. is this guy who's just like, let's see how smart you are, Batman. It's like, sure, you could beat me up for one by one, you know, if I'm in the same room with you, but I'm not going to be in the same room with you. I'm going to do this sort of stuff, and I'm going to brag about how much smarter I am than you are. 
I, I love that sort of thing. Sending Batman on a fool's errand around the city, having to do things to save people. And there's a little aspect of him being kind of humiliated by it, too. And also getting a chance to prove how smart Batman is. And I don't know if you get a lot of that in a lot of modern Batman stories, is him having to figure something out in a really clever way. I think the closest we get to that is actually in the Arkham video games, where you actually have the Riddler as part of these side quests where he's got these puzzles. Now, some of them you can just muscle your way through, but they require a little bit of coordination and a little bit of thinking and, and scheming ahead. And I think maybe just like the limits of the mechanics of the world kind of prevent you from going all the way there. But I think that's that might be the closest example to something like you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, he should be a guy who really makes the reader have to guess. Like, we're talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance, where you're going like, what does that mean? How would I do that? How would I do that? How would I do that? And you have a ticking, a literal ticking bomb right there. And making you feel like, oh my god, I know I can get this, I know I can get this. I think if you can pull that off, and that's a hard thing to do because it really requires a lot of the writer to do something really interesting. And I think it also brings up the fact that the Riddler is a playful bad guy. He's committing all these crimes, but he's also playing a game with Batman. And, I mean, he could just be a criminal genius that just gets away with anything. There are, there are criminal geniuses in real life whose names we do not know because half of the stuff they do is actually technically legal. But you never hear their names because they, are, they don't get dropped into the, like, the prison yard by Superman who gives the warden a salute. And, you know, they just get rich and you never hear their name. But in this world, the world where criminals are crazy and over the top, he's a guy who doesn't want to get away with it. He wants to play that game in public. He wants to know, Batman, I did this. And I'm also smarter than you, and you can't figure it out. And I think it's such a difficult dance to do. I mean, everyone has a Joker story. It's not that hard to, to use Catwoman, because all you really need with her is a heist to be a real Catwoman story. But with the Riddler, you need the riddles. I mean, it's in his name. There's no way to take it away from him. So it's probably why, despite how well-known he is, he doesn't get used that much. So you, you have this iconic villain who just ends up being completely underutilized. And I think because of that, you kind of have this chicken-and-the-egg problem, whereas people don't use him, so they don't create that iconic Riddler story. And because they don't create that iconic Riddler story, people don't have a template that they immediately go to and want to emulate or top or make better. So, I mean, everyone knows the modern Joker, everyone knows the modern Penguin, but I don't know if we know modern Riddler. Well, that's a pretty good segue to the next section, which was the publication history. Uh, the Riddler was created by writer Bill Finger and artist Dick Sprang for a story in Detective Comics issue 140, published in August of 1948. He returned again just two months later in Detective Comics 142. After that, the character dropped out of view for 17 years. He returned in 1965 in the pages of Batman issue 171, and this return could not have come at a better time. The story from Batman 171 was adapted for the live-action television show in 1966, and the Riddler became one of Batman and Robin's most frequent foes, played famously by actors Frank Gorshin in seasons 1 and 3, and John Astin in season 2. Meanwhile, the Riddler would make nearly 20 more appearances in Batman and Detective Comics throughout the 60s, 70s, and up to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Riddler's first animated appearance was in the Filmation Batman cartoons in 1968. After that, he was featured regularly in Challenge of the Super Friends as part of the Legion of Doom. Since the Dark Knight's rise to the top of DC's Pantheon in the late 80s, 
the Riddler has never been out of sight for long. He's made countless appearances in comics, received his own one-shot specials, a miniseries called Run Riddler Run, and most recently played Batman's earliest efforts at crime-fighting in the Zero-Year story arc by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Outside of comics, the Riddler appeared in the film Batman Forever, played by Jim Carrey. He's shown up in damn near every animated version of Batman, as well as the popular Arkham video game series. For being a relatively obscure villain with only three comic book appearances at the time he made his television debut, the Riddler has acquitted himself very well over the last couple of decades. But like you said, I mean, even with all of those appearances, I don't know which one is the definitive one. I, I even think they try to do new things with him uh, in Batman Hush, the miniseries by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee. Actually, it wasn't a miniseries. It was part of the regular ongoing Batman series. But in that story arc, they revealed at the end that the Riddler had figured out Batman's secret identity. He knew that Batman was Bruce Wayne, but chose to keep it a secret for funsies, I guess? I, I never really understood why. Well, I mean, who's he going to play with if Batman's gone? Exactly. I mean, Batman's probably the only person who can keep up with him and keep foiling his plans, because Batman's the only one that's that smart. I mean, what are the Gotham police going to do it? That's no fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's good. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I, I kind of like that interpretation of just Batman rogues in general, which is Batman is kind of necessary for the thing that they do. I think that's the kind of funny thing with it is that Batman is kind of their playmate. He's the person that they build schemes for, and I think a lot of them, especially people like the Riddler, if they had to just fight the cops all the time, I think they'd get bored and quit. <laughs> Because, I mean, who else is going to escape from a giant exploding typewriter or figure out this insane plot or follow you to the other side of the world and battle your skiing machine gun goons or, you know, escape from your crocodile pit? I mean, who else is going to do that? It's not going to be Harvey Bullock. And I think more recently they've kind of done the same thing with the Joker where they've said the Joker knows Batman as Bruce Wayne, but he wouldn't tell anybody because he likes their relationship and he wants to fight. And I think it's beyond that that he doesn't know Batman's identity because if he did know it would it would ruin everything. I think he doesn't want to know. I think he couldn't be less interested in who Batman is underneath the cowl. Like yeah, I mean it would, it would again spoil the fun. Right. Cuz once once he knows then he has to act on it. I mean he he can't not. And I think if Jim Gordon really focused on it, Jim Gordon could figure it out, but he doesn't want to because if he knows the truth, he has to arrest him. Yeah. And as long as he's got that plausible deniability, so he's going to, you know, willful ignorance in this case. There's also a lot of really weird coincidences with the Joker and Bruce Wayne that all of these high-priced Gotham City charity galas <laughs> that he's always crashing with like an exploding cake or something or a bunch of goons. It just seems like, of course, Bruce Wayne's going to be there. Of course, he's in a tuxedo and he has to sneak away while everyone's purses are being stolen. Batman gets there really quickly. Yeah, really quickly. I mean, he has to change, get on the roof, and then crash through the window. <laughs> So, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's really interesting how he always manages to show up. And it's it's kind of funny because if he knew that he was Bruce Wayne, I think it would ruin the fun because he gets a cool entrance, Batman gets a cool entrance. That's just how it works. And if he's already there, you know, just eating hors d'oeuvres in a tuxedo, it's a lot less fun. Because I've got a crazy costume, he's got a crazy costume. All right. You ready to get into the Riddler origin story, such as it is? Yes. 
When is a Door is written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Bernie Moreau, inked by Matt Wagner, and colored by Joe Matt. Steve Jones and his crew arrive at the Finger Junkyard to meet Edward Nigma. The former Riddler has been managing the junkyard while on parole, but this is no ordinary junkyard. This is where all of the giant novelty props that decorated Gotham's skylines in the 1940s and 50s ended up. A giant typewriter, a giant adding machine, giant salt and pepper shakers, giant old-time radio, giant camera, giant block of Swiss cheese and a giant mouse, a giant eight ball, a giant pool table, a giant pinball game, a giant ear of corn, giant beer bottle, giant lollipop, giant whisk, giant slinky, and a giant inflatable caterpillar. All fully functional, or at least they used to be. And right in the center of this museum, or mausoleum to kitschy retro advertising, is the Riddler, straddling the barrel of a giant snub-nosed revolver. Steve Jones asks him when his career as a costume criminal began. But when is more than just a question. When is a door? A door to the past, or a door to a plaintive monologue about the bygone days of crime in Gotham. Riddler tosses out numerous potential origins for himself, from cheating on tests or jigsaw puzzles, to being a carnival barker, to engaging in criminal acts simply to test his wits against the Batman. He glosses over all of them, much preferring to talk about the good old days, when he and his specially named henchmen would hang out with the Penguin, Joker, and Catwoman, to say nothing of the more obscure crooks like King Tut and Marsha Queen of Diamonds. Steve Jones asks if Edward Nigma is the Riddler's real name, but that question just prods the Riddler into asking more riddles. Sensing he won't get a real answer about the Riddler's real name, Steve asks the Riddler what was his most impressive crime he ever committed. Riddler says it was one time when he robbed a bank underwater, and then mentions that the clue he left is somewhere in this junkyard. He goes on to defend all of the kitschy, corny, stupid giant props left to rot in the yard. These giant props were part of his life. They had meaning to him, and to watch people cast them off so dismissively is painful to the Riddler. Steve asks how the Riddler feels about Batman, and the Riddler responds with another riddle. When is a man a city? He answers, when the city is Batman, or the man is Gotham. Either one works, because Batman and Gotham City are interchangeable. Gotham doesn't make sense, it's contradictory, at once dangerous and silly, just like Batman, and just like Batman's villains. That's why none of them can leave. Next, Steve asks why he adopted riddles as his gimmick. Again, the Riddler offers multiple answers for the question, none more credible than the next. I'm the Riddler, he says. Isn't that enough? Frustrated, Steve says the Riddler hasn't given him a straight answer to any of his questions, to which the Riddler responds basically with, Dadoy. <laughs> the Riddler is Enigma. He's a puzzle, a mystery. You don't go to the Riddler for answers, you go for questions. And with that, he ends the so called interview and shuts the lights on the junkyard. Outside, Steve tells his crew that was a waste of time, but Nat, the cameraman, argues that the Riddler is extremely telegenic and would make a great talk show host. And that is the story, but not at all the origin of the Riddler. So, Mike, what did you think about this one? I really liked it. And the thing that kind of hit me as I was reading it was this is the second time I've been on the Secret Origins podcast, and I've never actually looked at an origin of a character yet. <laughs> that, that With Jonah Hex and now with the Riddler, I think the Riddler, it's done so deliberately that 
it doesn't matter. I mean, that's ultimately the point, that it doesn't matter what the origin of the Riddler is, because that's not why you come to him. You come to him for wacky, crazy adventures and clues and silliness. And one of the things I found really interesting about this, and one of the things that kind of shocked me that DC would publish this at the time that they did, was that Neil Gaiman seems to be kind of lamenting the good old days of Batman comics. And the Riddler does as well. He's like, geez, what happened to us? I mean, the Joker's killing people, for goodness sake. You know, we used to have fun with this. We were the joke tellers. Batman was the straight man. And we had fun. People were in danger, but nobody really got hurt. And I could see of him kind of lamenting the direction that Batman comics were going in the direction. And I can, I mean, I know why this issue came out. It came out in 1989, yeah. right in the crosshairs of the Batman movie. And Batman, since the mid-80s, had been going in a really dark direction. And we got really in-depth into sort of dissecting the psychology of Batman and dissecting the psychology of all his bad guys and trying to figure out why they could be so dark and crazy. And I think him... You know, Neil Gaiman is deliberately refusing to do that and saying, no, this Riddler character is an excellent look back at a bygone era of how we used to do these crazy bad guy stories. And as he ends the thing where he jumps down and on the giant typewriter and makes a question mark, he says, sometimes the old stuff still works. It couldn't be more obvious that the Riddler is speaking for Neil Gaiman in one sense, that these were the stories Neil Gaiman grew up on. The Batman television show is all over this story. I mean, even the names that Riddler name drops, King Tut, Bookworm, Egghead, and Marsha Queen of Diamonds, those were villains from the Adam West show. I don't think they ever had comic book equivalents. And like the ones that he mentions, like hanging out with Joker, Penguin, and Catwoman, the four of them were the four villains from the live-action movie with Batman and Robin. Oh, yeah. Did you notice the name of the junkyard? The Finger Junkyard, yeah, after Bill Yeah, Finger, the Finger yeah. Junkyard. Oh, yeah. It's just such a, I mean, all of it, and the idea of these giant props were such a big part of those old Dick Sprang era mm-hmm. Batman stories. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, that's the giant typewriter that Robin got tied to, and that's the giant, I mean, this stuff would be all over the rooftops of Gotham City, and it would get factored into all these crimes, and of course, I have a giant chicken robot that actually lays eggs, and, you know, it's like all that kind of stuff, and it's him kind of holding on to it, just the way he's kind of holding this stuff and taking care of it, keeping it close to his heart, so, you know, Neil Gaiman is, and so is the Riddler, and saying, no, this stuff is still cool, just because it's sitting in here and nobody else wants to use it doesn't mean it doesn't still work and it doesn't mean that it's useless and somebody should take care of it and hold on to it because we want to use this stuff again in Batman stories and there's still a place for it among all the darkness and there's a place for campiness and silliness and I I really like that about this story because especially when you put it into the context of the time that it was being published I mean, Batman stuff was heading into probably its darkest era, and I'm not really sure it's ever really pulled itself out of that era. No. I mean, we're still in the beginning of it. I mean, this story has Batman appear in the interstitial stories, but dark Batman here is still wearing blue and gray. Mm -hmm. So we haven't fully lost the color, but we're moving in that direction. But one thing I was kind of curious about with the Riddler in this was that the Riddler is actually retired in this story. This is a much older character. Like, he looks older. This seems to be a character of his time. I mean, they make reference that, yeah, he's been in jail, he's out, but he's, he's yeah, he's past his prime. 
Yeah, he's not committing crimes anymore. And they talk about these giant things being from the 40s and 50s. And when he does take his hat off, he's got a receding hairline. And his hair almost looks like it could be – you could interpret that as being white. I think so. Yeah, that was how I read it. Yeah, he's, he's graying and almost bald. And he's wrinkly like his – yeah, this definitely looks like an older man. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that we could be launching into new Riddler stories, and you're like, no, a Riddler is a relic of the past, that he's in this junkyard the same way as his other things are. It's like, we've made the Joker super dark, and we've made Two-Face super dark, and we've made the Penguin dark, but it feels like there's something about this guy in this bright purple and green costume with question marks on it that feels like he belongs in this world. Mm-hmm. That there's something just inescapably silly about him that you can't sort of take out. And maybe we're getting into that same reason why people haven't used him as much. The one thing that I think almost contradicts that, and it's the one element of him that seems new, is the costume he's wearing in this story, which is the green three-piece suit with a purple shirt and the bowler cap. And I don't remember if Riddler wore this outfit in the comics before this time. Really? And I could be wrong, and if somebody can point to an example, but I was looking through most of the Riddler stories that I have, and I could not think of an example or a time before this one. Like, Did he ever wear the suit in the 66 series? I don't know, but I do not remember Riddler wearing a suit, and that has become more of his costume since then. Yeah. I mean, that's the version of the character that I see at least 50% of the time, that Mm -hmm. people either have him in the green long johns or they have him in the suit. Yeah. I've got to say, I think I like the suit better. I and I typically do too, but I'm I'm wondering if this is the first time it appears in comics. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I could be wrong. I, somebody listening, let me know if I'm wrong or not. But I I can't think of a time that predates this. Yeah. I, now that you're actually mentioning it, I don't know. Um, I'm not as diehard of a Batman fan or have the sort of Batman expertise I know other people have to. I can't think of anything prior to the 1980s with him wearing that suit, but I know that since then, you either have the tights or you have the suit, and writers go back and forth, kind of like he just has two outfits. Mm -hmm. I think I prefer this look. I think it stands out a bit more, and there's a lot of superhero-type characters that have those two costumes, whether it's like the Golden Age Sandman or the Crimson Avengers, where they have both a spandex outfit yeah. and a three-piece suit with a hat and a mask. And I always like the suit with the mask better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's the same thing that like Matthew Lesko wears, but Matthew Lesko wears it because of the Riddler, <laughs> not the other way around. It's such an iconic look, and the colors are the same, and the question mark is definitely there. But there's something about the character wearing a derby that's hard for me to not think of him in. I mean, I almost find myself imagining him wearing the derby, even when he wears the tights. And I think that look has been used at some point, too. Yeah. it's Getting back to Matthew Lesko, do you remember who Matthew Lesko is? I do not. You probably know him, but you don't know his name. He was this guy who would show up on television infomercials throughout the 90s, wearing basically a Riddler costume and selling these books that would make you rich from free money from the government. And suddenly, he's not on TV anymore. And whenever somebody is suddenly not on TV and they were a person that was going to make you rich, usually it means they're in jail. But I was thinking... Oh, God, I do remember this guy. 
Yeah. So I was just thinking, what if the question mark suit was a thing where the judge is like, I don't know if what I'm dealing with here, I'm not going to send him to jail. I'm sending this guy to Arkham. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was just this weird little thing. But everyone always kind of knew that that was the Riddler suit. I mean, that's how in deeply entrenched in pop culture the Riddler is. But I just remember that kind of costume being all over TV. And now I don't see that guy anywhere. I'm going to feel really bad if I find out he died. Uh-huh. <laughs> According to Google, he's 73, still alive and kicking. Okay, okay. <laughs> Don't feel bad, probably not in prison. Sorry, Mr. Lesko. <laughs> um, going back to something that we mentioned, I agree, I like what Gaiman does here with not presenting an origin for the Riddler, because he should be a mystery. That's just thematically and functionally something elegant about the character that he is a mystery, perhaps a mystery to himself, and we'll just never know all the answers to this guy. He's, he is a question. But this is slightly different. I think we should know what his motivation is. Yes. Not necessarily who he was before he put on the costume or what he's all about, but if not, why does he do it? What does he want? Do you think we get that from this story? No, I think it plays keep away with that question. I think Neil Gaiman is explicitly refusing to answer that question. He'd much rather sort of make a point about the direction that comics were going in, especially Batman comics, than actually tackle it and saying that it's the questions that matter and not those answers. But I think the bad side effect of that, even though I love the story individually, is that it doesn't really create a platform for new Riddler stories. And it, when you to me, it almost feels like it's retiring the character. It does. It sort of said he's from a bygone era. He's going to go live in a junkyard. You can have your scary Batman stories, but he's going to live in essentially a museum to the Silver and Golden Age. Mm-hmm. And after Crisis on Infinite Earths, I don't think the Riddler was used. Well, okay, so he comes back, and actually, my favorite Riddler story was published in 1990, so a year after this one, but. He wasn't used really in the last half of the 80s. He didn't get a lot of use, so maybe they thought they were retiring him. Maybe they thought anything he could do, the Joker could do better. Yeah, a lot of people who don't know Batman sort of assume those guys are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there's a joke element to the things that they do, and their name sort of sounds like it could be the same, the same as, like, the prankster. But they're all different characters, and that's just not me being, like, a really, really, like, comic book nerd type, but... Well, I I even remember right after The Dark Knight came out, before The Dark Knight Rises, I think everybody wanted the Riddler to be the villain of the third movie. And everybody was like, yeah, the Doctor Who guy has to play him. What's oh, that actor's name? David Tennant? David Tennant, yeah. That would They're be like, great. It's got to be David Tennant as the Riddler. Like, of course, yeah, that would be awesome. But I was thinking about it, and I was like, okay, but putting the Riddler in a Christopher Nolan type of Batman movie, it's just going to be Death Traps, which is exactly what we saw with the Joker in The Dark Knight. Mm. I was like, they've got to do I was like, he can't be the Riddler. It's got to be something. They've got to go something completely different, which they did with Bane, which I thought was effective for that movie, even yeah, though that it, movie was just Rocky Three. but I still enjoyed it. It was Rocky Three. Oh, man. I hadn't thought that before. It's, the, uh, the parallels are crazy. But Oh, man. I was just thinking about what a truly grim and gritty Riddler would be, and you mentioned Death Traps, and it seems like you just get a PG-13 version of Saw. Where you have this guy trying to make people overcome their like own personal demons in these really grotesque traps rather than testing people's knowledge or cleverness. Because it's a lot easier to go gruesome than it is to go smart. 
And I think I'm not to complain about a lot of comics that were coming out in the nineties, though I will. I think that a lot of people got those two things mixed up and that somehow doing something dark was the same thing as doing something smart. And I think the Riddler is really the thing that kind of puts the lie to that, that you can do a really smart story with the Riddler. Again, the Die Hard with a Vengeance model, Mm -hmm. where you can really tax people and they can almost seem like, here's a math question, better solve it, but there's real life consequences and people will die. I think you can do that without getting too gruesome, without, you know, going in the saw direction. And you think you can go in there without just doing crazy children's joke books ones because a lot of the riddles that he would do with Frank Gorshin really made no sense and they had such specific answers and I think they were kind of making fun of them in this story mm-hmm. like you know what's yellow and dangerous shark infested custard and I'm like that makes that's, no sense that's not Who's a gonna- thing that's not a thing. And all the answers were, that's not a thing. I yeah. think there was a, one of them in Batman, the 1966 movie, where it's like, I sit in a, ter- a tree and I'm dangerous, and it's like a sparrow with a machine gun. And I'm like, who's going to come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> I remember one Batman story. I think it was in like the Legends of the Dark Knight, not the original series, but the digital first series. I, I think I read it on Comixology. And there was a face-off between Batman and the Riddler, where the Riddler just ranted about how much he hated the riddle game in the hobbit oh (laughs) because what's in my pocket he's like that's not a riddle that's not how (laughs) riddles work it's just a question and he's like the whole thing is a cheat and he hated that he would not stand for that but to be fair Gollum had been living in a cave for like 500 years (laughs) he hasn't talked to anyone for a while so he probably hasn't played this game i mean what like is a goblin gonna go down there and play this game with him (laughs) probably not what did you think of the art overall in this section? I really liked it. Um, it's weird, and it has that little bit of a grotesque kind of way to it. It looks a little bit like a mix between Ty Templeton, the way Ty Templeton sort of does things. Mm-hmm. And there's a little touch of John McRae. You know, he drew Hitman yeah. back in the 90s. Yeah, 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 I can see that. With a sort of absurd kind of, I, you know, just weirdness to it. And I think they definitely played up the weirdness, but I really kind of love the way they drew, drew those uh, giant props mm-hmm. that are surrounding it. I like the backgrounds when he's asking riddles, like you have this crazy spherical checker pattern, and then in another one, he's got like a literal puzzle working out behind him, or a crazy like 60s psychedelic thing behind him. And it gives him this great opportunity to draw the Riddler moving around while he's essentially just talking, while he's popping out of the holes in a giant Swiss cheese, or he's sitting on top of a giant camera. I just love the way all of the props look in it, especially that first page where you don't quite see the Riddler because he's really tiny in the image, mm-hmm. but you get to see the entire junkyard. And I just think, oh man, I'd love to play around in that place. I love that panel because the artist actually creates a giant question mark in the image. <laughs> yes, he does. the curl of the caterpillar. And then right below that, there's a circular pattern. That's a close-up of Steve Jones asking the question. I didn't even notice that. That is amazing. I love it. I love that so much. I love the next page where the Riddler is straddling that giant pistol. <laughs> and he's kind of riding it like that bomb at the end of Doctor Strange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. The giant corn cob. I mean, it's a giant funhouse. And I like the, the idea that all this stuff that Gotham City used to be just kind of squashed into one place. And it's kind of like the idea of him being sad about that stuff not being used anymore. Mm-hmm. But somebody's got to take care of it and remember it. 
but yeah, I, I do love that about the art. There's a playfulness and a weirdness to it, but I think that drawing it in a much more cartoony, kind of realistically proportioned way, especially like when you see him actually throw all of his suit off and he's wearing the old uh, tights on underneath, it does make him look kind of old in that moment because you can see how much skinnier he is than the suit. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes him seem kind of like a crazy old man. And it does sort of say this is a guy from a bygone era that he, you can see in him the person that he used to be, but he's also aged too. And I kind of love that. Overall, I really liked the story. It's hard not to like a Neil Gaiman story. I mean, the man is just talented enough that whatever he writes, it's probably going to be good. But. The part of me that has been cataloging the series expecting secret origin stories, I felt a little unsatisfied, not in that I didn't get the character's backstory, because I think thematically that is appropriate that we don't get that story. But again, sort of what we were saying, I don't get his motivation, and I get the feeling like this is all... This isn't about that even. This isn't really about the Riddler. This is about a genre within superhero fiction that Neil Gaiman feels like we're not getting anymore. Which feels kind of strange because Gaiman also writes the framing sequence. The, the, the whole... It's weird that he chose this story to write too, while he's also writing the framing device. Yeah, he's kind of deliberately moving against the overall themes in this one place Mm -hmm. where the overall theme seems to be that these people don't understand how dangerous these silly things actually are. But then you have this one story where this guy really is a silly thing that is mostly harmless now. But yeah, it's kind of funny the way you talk about it. Using this as a springboard usually for, does this make me want to read more Riddler stories? Does this create a platform for more new Riddler stories to come about? And it kind of does and it kind of sounds like you're saying the same thing that the Riddler is about the Hobbit is that Neil Gaiman just cheated yeah (laughs) we get a lot of questions but are they riddles or are they yeah he's going that's not a Riddler that's just a bunch of questions you're cheating Neil Gaiman (laughs) um I, I know we sort of talked a little bit about it at the beginning but do you have other favorite Riddler stories or favorite appearances in other media maybe Actually, the funny thing is, in terms of comic books, my favorite Riddler moment is probably not even in a Batman story. There was a Judd Winnick run on Green Arrow probably about 10 years ago. I think it was 2004, Mm -hmm. where uh, the Riddler is doing the crazy Mad Bomber thing around uh, Star City. And he's playing with Green Arrow rather than... And there's there's a lot of other crazy stuff happening, but I... I haven't read that story in like 10 years, but I remember really liking it and liking the way they wrote the Riddler and the way that I think the big reveal is that he actually has an atomic bomb in the middle of Star City. And they played him not as much as a sort of crazy Frank Gorshin, manic, crazy person, but they played him as kind of like a flash rogue where this is about the challenge. This is about the fun of taking on somebody And maybe even outsmarting this one specific guy and making money doing it. That I'm in this for the challenge. And he didn't seem like a guy that you would throw in Arkham. He seemed like a guy that would just go to regular jail. That maybe he's got a psychological quirk where he can't help it. But it's not a thing that dominates his whole thing where he can't help but do this. He likes doing this and he does it deliberately. So I guess that's the version of that. And the other one I'd say again, Die Hard with a Vengeance. (laughs) could very easily be a great Riddler movie, and I think that's the way I would want to do it, where you're playing with the hero, the bad guy is toying with him, and forcing him to be smart, 
And you have a character like Bruce Willis as John McClane, who's not exactly like he's not dumb, but he's not the smartest guy in the world. And it's kind of cool to see that guy really get stretched beyond his usual genre conventions Mm -hmm. and the way he's been treated in prior movies. And I would love to see a Batman movie that treated the Riddler that way. I agree. I think that would be great. Uh, For me, my default image of the Riddler is Frank Gorshin's version, but in comics, it's the first one that I read, which was the aforementioned story. It was a three-parter called Dark Knight, Dark City. Uh, It was published in Batman issues 452 through 454. They had beautiful cover art by Mike Mignola, the guy who created Hellboy. Oh, yeah. Uh, The interior art, I think, was by Kieran Dwyer. Uh, The stories were written by Peter Milligan. They've actually been recollected in a trade paperback just within the last couple of years. Uh, kind of surprised me because I thought it was a pretty obscure story, and it's a dark story. And there's all like there's this whole backstory about Gotham during the colonial era with like people trying to like sacrifice versions to summon a demon, and the demon sort of becomes the spirit of the city. But throughout this whole thing, you've also got the story with the Riddler who has kidnapped these babies and he's using them to kind of lead Batman through the circuitous chase all around the city, uh, and he's a savage, brutal killer. Uh, throughout the story, like his, the first issue of the story, like he's got these two cops or security guards held hostage, uh, and, he, and it's a point that he's got two of them because he t- turns to one of them and he says, "What's fat and sweaty and totally expendable?" Oh, and then he shoots the guy in the head. Um, oh man! Yeah, I was like, like that was the first time I read the Riddler in the comic. I was like, "Whoa, this is a little bit different than Frank Gorshin." <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, you can do so much with this guy. And uh, maybe it's both a curse, but it's also a blessing that he's different every time we see him. Mm-hmm. Gives people freedom to experiment. Who here likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, and though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue, and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. Say 
All right, it's time to talk about the man who is perhaps Batman's most conflicted enemy, Two-Face. And naturally, I couldn't have just one guest on the Two-Face segment. That would be ridiculous. So I brought in a pair of guests. First up, representing the clean side of the coin, he's been on this show before and he is the host of Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial. Please welcome Nathaniel Wayne back to the show. How are you, Nathaniel? I am doing just fine. And representing the very ugly and scarred side of the coin, making his first appearance on Secret Origins from the Coffee and Comics blog, please welcome Clinton Robison. Hello, Clinton. You're talking to the wrong RV. <laughs> well done. Sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> well done. Uh, Clinton, since you are the new guest on the show, I will ask you first, how and when did you first encounter the character Two-Face? Uh, probably my first encounter with Two-Face was as the action figure that Toy Biz put out in the early 90s. To me, he looked like composite Superman trying to hawk used cars. <laughs> that was my first experience, too. I had that toy. He had, like, this straight up, like, you could, like, wind him up and his coin, like, it was in the hand. He had this giant, it was like the size of a legit dime built into his hand, and it spun around. It wouldn't flip. His hand just, like, turned over. But it's the suit that got me. The sad part is it even looks like what's on the cover, more or less. <laughs> you know, different color scheme, but, I mean, right down to the, the stripes and plaid, everything. What was your first experience with the character in the comics? Uh, probably in Nightfall, but that didn't leave a lasting impression. Really, the animated series is what got Two-Face across to me as a character. Nathaniel, what was your first experience with Two-Face? All right. Very first time I saw this character was with very little context because when I was buying comics in the 90s, uh, 90s comics retrial, plugo, plugo, um, I was buying Marvel um, and I had a friend who was buying DC. Uh, we both bought Image because we were both suckers. So when I would visit him and go over to his house, I'd flip through his DC and he had a, he had a Batman issue and I – you know what? I looked it up back when we first set this up, and now I, I forgot to write it down. But I, I did find out what issue it was. But it was some issue of Batman, and there was some crime Batman was investigating. I don't even remember what it was. But at one point, he turns to Alfred and says, you want suspects, Alfred? Take your pick. And he sort of throws these cards with you know these faces and names of all of these villains on a table. And Two-Face was one of the ones on there. And it was from around the same time because he had the green face uh, like he does in this story. And that was the first time I ever saw him. The thing was, though, is that did nothing to really drive home to me whether or not he was important at all because this was such a jumble. Like, Joker was front and center. And I did know who Joker was. But other than that, like, he was mixed in with, you know, there was Scarecrow, but then there was Tweedledee and Tweedledum and Gentleman Ghost. <laughs> So I had absolutely no concept of how important or unimportant he was because it was clearly just a mix. I think the first time I paid attention to Two-Face would have been the animated series, which in my mind is still the high watermark, for, certainly for depicting the origins of Two-Face because they introduced Harvey Dent early on and did several episodes building up this split that he was trying to cope with before he actually got disfigured and everything went to heck. Yeah, it's it's hard not to say like that Two Face two parter that set up his story in Batman the Animated Series is if not one of the best episodes or stories in that series. Certainly, maybe the best we've ever seen of Two Face. Um, for me, like right around the same time when I was getting into comics and DC comics, it was in 1990. 
I remember getting that Toy Biz figure that was horribly made. Um, I got this issue of Secret Origins, and also right around the same time in 1990, Batman Annual Number 14. Uh, it had a Neil Adams cover. It was just a huge close-up of Two-Face. And it retold his origin, which was funny because his origin is in this story, sort of. Uh, and then that issue kind of really reset his origin and redid a lot of details. And then later, a couple of years later, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale would borrow bits of that story, but also change other things for Batman The Long Halloween. I didn't take him as seriously at first because he wasn't in the Batman 66 show, and I was watching a lot of those reruns, and, and Two-Face never made an appearance in that, although there are still some rumors that persist. I don't know how legit these are, but some rumors said that they... Somebody wrote a script for him. Maybe it was Harlan Ellison wrote a script for Batman with Two-Face that just never got made. And maybe Clint Eastwood, of all people, was eyed to play the part? That second part's new. I'd heard that first half. That part's new to me. I'd heard, and this could be all BS, but I'd heard that Eastwood was good friends with Adam West at the time, and he was kind of getting his start in that. He might have been eyed for Two-Face if that ever got off the water, but it didn't, so... Uh, All right, let's look at the character's publication history. Two-Face appeared four times in the 1940s. First in Detective Comics, issues 66 and 68, published in 1942. Then in issue 80, the following year. And finally in Batman, issue 50, published in 1948. The Two-Face who appears in these comics, however, is now considered the Earth-2 version of Two-Face because originally the character's civilian name was Harvey Kent. Not wanting to draw any confusing connections with DC's more popular Kent, and of course I mean Brian Kent, better known as Silent Knight, what other character could I possibly mean, Two-Face was renamed Harvey Dent when he appeared in Batman issue 81 in 1954. Two-Face did not appear in comics throughout the 1960s, nor did he appear in the Batman television series of that era, as we mentioned. His next appearance was Batman 234 in 1971, and eight or nine other issues of Batman in the 70s. During that time, he also appeared in Justice League of America issues 125 and 126, Brave and the Bold issues 106, 129, and 130, first issue special issue 7 featuring the Creeper, that one's just for Dr. Ange, and Two-Face also appeared in Teen Titans 47 and 48, two issues that featured his daughter, Duella Dent, who went by the name Joker's Daughter, just because she wanted to piss off Daddy or something, I don't know. Two-Face's popularity continued to rise in the 1980s. He appeared in a dozen more issues of Batman and Detective before Crisis on Infinite Earths. After the Crisis, Two-Face appeared in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, and a little bit after that, Miller revised the character, further embellishing Harvey Dent's early career and connection with Batman and Gordon. This would influence later stories like Batman Annual No. 14, which I mentioned, which in turn influenced The Long Halloween. Over the last 25 years, Two-Face has become one of Batman's most popular and prolific villains, appearing in countless comic books, cartoons, video games, and live-action appearances in two Batman movies, three if you count Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent and Tim Burton's Batman. In 2013, Two-Face ranked the 15th greatest villain in comics according to a college humor list, and 12th on a list compiled by IGN. Obviously, there's a ton of material here, and I didn't go into super detail, but do you know of any noteworthy Two-Face appearances that I didn't mention? No, I think you covered it pretty well. All right. 
then let us get into The Origin of Two-Face, which is technically untitled. It's written by Mark Verheiden, penciled by Pat Broderick, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by Augustin Moss, colored by Tom McCraw, and edited by Mark Wade. Two-Face sits at a desk in his secret hideout thinking about heavy stuff, like patterns and the order of the universe, and the chance of a coin flip. Two of his hired goons wonder if he's in the right headspace for the job they have planned, while the boss pulls out a handheld mirror to stare at the reflection of his horribly scarred face. Elsewhere, Grace Dent has agreed to appear on Steve Jones' television show, though not without some reservations about how Jones will characterize her husband. The media has burned her relationship with Two-Face in the past, but she reluctantly came on Steve Jones' program to share the details of a recent encounter she had with her husband, something she hopes will give the people of Gotham a new perspective on the former district attorney. Grace tells Jones... Grace Jones? Yeah, okay... Grace tells Jones and his audience a story about Dalton Perry, an inmate convicted by Harvey Dent who spent his entire eight-year sentence in solitary confinement, not because of his behavior, but by choice. Dalton Perry didn't want any distractions chipping away at his hatred for Harvey Dent, and he was willing and able to arrange the death of his cellmate in order to secure time in the hole. When Dalton got out of prison, he methodically went about purchasing a used car, a handgun, some rope from a hardware store, and a five-gallon can of gasoline. He also made a phone call to his criminal contacts to spread the word that he was going to murder the man who put him in prison. Then Dalton drove to Harvey Dent's old house. He captures Grace, ties her up, and keeps a gun pointed at her, banking on the idea that Harvey will come to rescue his wife. They take a break from Grace's story, and Steve Jones shows her pictures of Harvey's life from a sidebar segment. She comments on the pictures, revealing that Harvey Dent lost both of his parents to a boating accident when he was a child. Needing to make sense of the random chaos of their deaths, Harvey became obsessed with law and order. He graduated top of his class at law school, eventually became district attorney of Gotham, and married Grace. Shortly after that, the Batman appeared in Gotham. Dent's office worked with the bat unofficially, but this simple compromise, the fact that the pure legal system wasn't enough to stop crime in Gotham, began to eat at Harvey's psyche. Grace suggests that her husband was already on a dangerous path before a mobster named Maroney hurled acid in his face during trial. At the same time Grace Dent is being threatened, Two-Face is planning the gang's next robbery when his goons tell him that Dalton Perry has taken Grace hostage. Two-Face flips his coin to decide what his next action will be. The clean side of the coin comes up, and Two-Face abandons the bank job to go to Grace. He parks the van outside her old house and waits. Inside, Dalton douses the window curtains with gasoline. He tells Grace that he'd heard rumors about Harvey's transformation into Two-Face, but he didn't really believe it. Meanwhile, Grace continues to narrate for the audience how Harvey got the coin, how the media named him Two-Face, and how he used to scream through the night when he was in the hospital. When he eventually recovered from the physical pain, he scarred one side of the coin and flipped it to determine his future. The trauma convinced Harvey that laws were meaningless. The only order in the universe was chance, like a coin toss. Thus, Harvey Dent became the criminal Two-Face, leaving every major decision to the flip of a coin. Back in the house, Grace tries to convince Dalton that whatever punishment he has imagined for Harvey will pale in comparison to what her husband has already experienced. Dalton doesn't buy it, or doesn't care. He sets the curtains on fire, hoping the blaze will attract Two-Face. It does. 
Two-Face crashes through the window, knocking Dalton to the floor. Dalton is initially shocked by Two-Face's scars, but he gets over it and actually beats Two-Face down as the fire spreads throughout the room. Dalton holds a gun to Two-Face's head and tells Grace to look at her husband before he dies. Two-Face sees the anguish on his wife's face and reacts. He disarms Dalton and begins to pound the man's face like Jon Snow beating Ramsay Bolton at the end of the Battle of Winterfell. Two-Face carries Dalton over to the fire and is ready to kill him when Grace shouts for him to stop. For the first time in years, Two-Face allows something other than chance to dictate his actions and decides to spare Dalton. He gets Grace and Dalton out of the house before it burns down. Outside, Harvey laments the destruction of the home he once shared with his wife, and Grace sees the humanity in his eyes. She asks Harvey to come back to her, to drop the coin and be human again. Harvey does drop the coin. It rolls on the ground until the scar side comes up. Grace tells Steve Jones that when the police and fire department arrived, Two-Face was gone. But she's still waiting for him. She's rebuilding the house, knowing that Harvey Dent is still in Two-Face, and someday he'll find his way back. And thus is the story of Two-Face. So, first thoughts. Nathaniel, what did you think about the story? There's a lot that I like about this story in terms of the way that it's told. Although I, I do kind of have to preface that, you know, flipping through the earlier sections of this, I'm like, oh, Sam Keith did the art for Penguin. Neil Gaiman wrote The Riddler. I'm stuck with Two-Face. But once I actually started reading it, I like that they tied it in with Grace because I've actually always found their relationship really interesting um, when they've chosen to dig into it because it's never been the typical you know wife of a crook thing that you see in comics, which actually does not get explored in comics all that often in the first place. But when it does, it tends to fit a very standard template, wife trying to get away from the awful husband. But there's a lot more at play with the two of them. And I really enjoy that, and I, and I like the way that they've framed it. That said, there are a couple of specific instances where the art kind of went sideways on me. But, I mean, we, we can break down art more specifically later. But overall, I thought this was really good, and I found it really compelling. Clinton, what did you think? Uh, well, I mean, it's not – it's sort of an origin, but it's not for, you know, about four panels it's the origin. But it's a good look at uh, Harvey's psyche trying to determine if he's still connected to anything that's left of Harvey Dent or if he's just fully Two-Face. And even when the Harvey side wins over, there's still that lingering bit of Two-Face left, like when he drops the coin and it comes up with the scarred side and he decides to go with that instead of his obvious emotions for Grace. I liked that we did get that moment, though, that she was able to break him down a little bit when she pleaded with him not to murder Dalton Perry. Well, it's funny that you say plead, because that makes it sound like she had to beg and he had to stop. But she she just says, Harvey, no. And he doesn't even hesitate. He just says, all right. And he stops. Yeah, and actually, actually that's what I love about just, it. It's more just her eyes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it's it's immediate and instinctive that he does that for her. And I actually really like it because the cliche thing would have been to draw it out and really hammer in the idea of she's pulling out the humanity. But no, it's there. It's just she's quite possibly the only person who can even have a prayer of tapping into it. Mm -hmm. In this story, her name is Grace. And in Batman the Animated Series, her name is Grace. I think those are the only two places she ever has that name. In every other story I've ever encountered, his wife's name or his fiance's name is Gilda. 
Oh god, that's right. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, in the long Halloween, yeah. it's Gilda. In the earlier stories, it was always Gilda. I think this is actually a retcon, and I don't know if Mark Verheiden got the name wrong, or and Mark Wade didn't catch it, or if this was just a deliberate thing. It's like, you know what? Nobody's named Gilda anymore. Let's just change it. <laughs> but it only lasted for these two stories. Like, even in the annual that came out a year after this one that I mentioned, her name was back to being Gilda. Huh. So. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the art. Pat Broderick, I usually like his stuff. He did some great work, especially in the 80s. He did. He actually did some Batman work around this time, uh, and I always liked it. But, I don't know, this is a case, sometimes I feel like the secret origin stories were kind of low profile, or they were always being done on a time crunch. I don't know if the art really stands out in this one. The issue for me is not that the art doesn't stand out, because, I mean, a lot of the panels are fine or even, even quite good, but every single time it gets into an action or a physical confrontation, people's bodies do weird things. And they just look weird, like limbs go in weird directions and heads are cocked at odd angles. And I'm looking through like when um, when the guy throws the acid in Harvey's face and Batman's punching him. His The way his head is going, but then the way his arm still is, it's like, did Batman just break his neck with that punch? <laughs> And then later when it's Two-Face slugging out with Batman, while I like the touch that Two-Face is actually landing a punch mm-hmm. um, dead on on Batman, I like that. But like, there's something about the angle of Two-Face's punching arm that looks weird. And then the really weird ones is when he's fighting um, – you know, the guy who's got his wife. And at one point, that guy kicks Harvey in the face and is like, where did that leg come from? <laughs> that that looks like a leg on a stick that somebody's swinging. There's no way that's attached to that body. He's and a then, cheerleader for a basketball team. He's well, a, the, he's the worst one, things. the worst one, the very next page, Harvey elbowing him in the face. And I'm like, what? It's like Two-Face is a pretzel man in that panel. It's... <laughs> Yeah, every time there's physical action, bodies get weird. That's, you know, a pull quote that I should just take out of this episode. (laughs) Um, And I'll actually, I'll do you better than all of those. Look at page five, the bottom left panel, when we're going through the pictures of Harvey's career. When Harvey has his finger out, when he's like campaigning, or he's, he's giving his acceptance speech, what is his arm doing? What do we have that perspective? Why is the finger, oh... You know what that one looks like? It looks like those sorts of things like when you watch uh, a movie that was that was shot and meant to be shown in 3D at home. <laughs> and like it, it's that moment that like that finger's supposed to be coming out of the panel at you, but it's not. So now it looks really dumb. <laughs> but uh, I mean other than that, like oh, most of like the character – like the facial expressions are pretty solid. I like the work there. He does with that. It feels of a time. Like, I can definitely look at this art and say, yep, this was done between, you know, 1987, 1990. Uh, Clinton, any thoughts on the art? Uh, I have to agree 100% on everything you guys have said. But take a good look at Two Face's face, especially on uh, page nine. Tell me you do not see Bruce Campbell. <laughs> I, now oh, that you said it. Yeah, it's one of those things, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Especially if you think about Army of Darkness. Yeah, Army of Darkness when he's got the bad Ash version. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I can see like this being played out by Bruce Campbell then, and it being the best Batman movie of the 90s. (laughs) 
Oh, God. If he had been Two-Face instead of Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah. boy. That yeah, would have been something. It, if you're going to play it for laughs, get an actor who's going to ham it up ten times worse than anybody <laughs> wants it to be. Yeah. <laughs> um... Gosh, no, now I can't. I gotta turn the page just because I can't see that anymore. <laughs> oh, it comes up more. There are a few others. You mentioned how this isn't. Uh, this falls into the the category. You know, I used to complain so much about the way Roy Thomas approached these origins, and as soon as Roy Thomas leaves, I'm reading these stories. I was like, why don't we get actual origins? And you said we only get like a couple of panels of Two Face's origin. That's still more than we got in the Riddler story that preceded this. That was deliberately not an origin story. But um, I love that story. It is really good. But I was thinking about the movie The Dark Knight after I read this, and as much as I like that, I, I I still really like that movie. I know it has had its detractors, and now that the Nolan Batman films are over, I think there are more people coming out who dislike that approach. I still really love the movie The Dark Knight, and I loved Aaron Eckhart's portrayal of Dent and his evolution into Two-Face in that movie. I liked how they approached his origin with the explosion and everything and the burning. That looked really good at the time, but I will always come back. There's just something so iconic about a character getting acid thrown on his face by a suspect in court. The fact that this is a public act, and I think they do more with it in The Long Halloween, where Batman, he describes everybody in the room, they'll never be able to stop hearing the screams that Harvey let out as he's just writhing in agony on the floor. And you see that, and you can understand how that can break somebody. I just think it, it needs to be in a courtroom. As much as I liked the way it played out in The Dark Knight and in the animated series, I think it's best if, in in the comics origin, if he's cross-examining a gangster and he gets acid thrown in his face. I can see the argument there. Um, But, I mean, sort of coming back to what you said, you know, it's not his origin full-on. For my part, and, I mean, Ryan, you remember, I had even more issues with the way Roy Thomas did the early stuff than you did. Mm -hmm. And I really prefer this. Because when the title is something called Secret Origins... I'm expecting to get something that I didn't already know. And when Roy Thomas was literally just retelling the origin as it had already existed, in my mind, there's no reason to read that. Mm -hmm. So when you do something like this where the origin is in here and it is covered, but it's sort of blanketed in this exploration of the character and giving you some additional background because of what Grace uh, tells in the interview and giving you another side of him that maybe you didn't know about. I like that much better because that, in my mind, that is a proper secret origin because, yes, it's the origin, but here's some other stuff you didn't know. Otherwise, I feel like the name secret shouldn't even be part of the title half the time with these comics. That's a good point. I'd I'd never really thought about it that way, but yeah, that's a good explanation. I like that. I'm going to steal that. That's, okay, that's my reason. <laughs> <laughs> Clint, what do you think? Well, I mean, I agree with you. I like the acid in the face a whole lot better than the actual explosion. You know, the explosion goes with Nolan's realistic approach. But this is a comic. We can go over the top. And as far as well, like this not being an origin story per se, you can look at it the same as the Firestorm origin. You know, that explored more Martin Stein than it did Ronnie Raymond. Mm-hmm. So this kind of explores more of the background of Harvey and Grace. Yeah. 
and actually that sort of leads me to my next point which is the actual story structure of this and I think this is something Nathaniel you sort of danced around in your first comment there is a lot that I like about the story that they're telling I don't know if I like how Mark Verheiden tells the story and, and it's really just because we have dual narratives and that again seems appropriate for a character obsessed with duality like Two-Face but they don't feel evenly weighted because Two-Face is kind of narrating part of his story, but he's not really talking about the events. We're just sort of seeing the events unfold around him while most of his narration is focusing on other weird kind of just more philosophical things about chance and patterns and waves and stuff. And then on the other side, we're getting Grace's version of the story, but she's telling it for a specific purpose. We have a frame for why she's talking about this past event. And both of the events are sort of taking place simultaneously, but we understand why she's telling the story from the past. She's being interviewed. She's answering questions and telling the story for an audience. We don't get that for Two-Face. It's just sort of like from time to time, the narrative just changes POV when it, there's no external mechanism that there should. That's true. I, I didn't know... You're right, and that's completely valid. I didn't notice it, which, I mean, is, is sort of my thing. I've adopted the model. There is no flawless story ever told, but great stories will go by so well that you won't notice when they did something wrong until later. So for me, this kind of falls into that category because, yeah, you say that, and I think about it, and you go, you're right. But it didn't occur to me as I was reading it. So that, to me, says something was still working well enough that that didn't cause my brain to do the record scratch thing. But no, you're not wrong. It's narratively unjustified that we get anything from Harvey's POV. And it just seems to do it because the story would be lacking complete context if we didn't get that. But they don't bother to properly justify why we get it. Um. I'm going to agree that we really don't need anything from Two-Face, but I'm going to try and no-prize this one and say that, you know, slipping back and forth between his point of view and Grace's is symbolic of the Two-Face personality taking over, maybe. Mm. You know, the borderline between Harvey and Two-Face and which one is the real personality and control. Okay, that's not winning any no-prizes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does make sense. I get it. And you could even take it further. The fact that the Two-Face part of the segment is a little bit more freeform. It is a little bit more chaotic. It's not as ordered and structured as the Grace segment. That could be symbolic, too, if we consider that her version is the Harvey side and his version is the Two-Face side. Somebody could make that argument and defend that. I, I get that. So. I, I like the story... I wish we got a little bit more of the past. I I could have done with a little bit less Dalton Perry and a little bit more of Grace and Harvey together. They're building romance, their connection, and the traumatic moment where he gets the acid in his face more than just one panel. But it didn't disrupt my enjoyment of the story. It was just something I noticed after the fact. Yeah, it's... I think it's a story that reads quite well, but doesn't hold up to a ton of scrutiny. And not for any logistical or plot hole reasons, but more for structure reasons. Any final thoughts on the story in general? Um, Personally, I feel like we're missing a page at the end. Since we start out with the frame of her telling the story on the show, 
it feels like the host just kind of got left in the background maybe i mean i see him right the panel right up there at the top the last page where she's still telling the story but i don't know it just feels like it it's hanging a little bit to me Maybe that's because we segue to him for the sort of epilogue for the story. We get his his final segment. But we will talk about that on the next part of the episode. What other Two-Faced stories should people be looking for in terms of recommended readings or recommended viewings? What would you recommend if somebody needs to know more about Two-Faced or just wants to dive into this character? Well, viewings, obviously, is the Two-Face two-parter from Batman the Animated Series. I mean, that that's a given. That should be the quintessential origin for this character, hands down. Uh, as far as readings, I know we've said The Long Halloween several times, uh, and the sequel, Dark Victory, is just as much a Two-Face story as Long Halloween is. The three-part story, Faces, by Matt Wagner. Oh, good one. Um, I was in Legends of the Dark Knight. I don't remember what issues off the top of my head. I don't remember either, but I know it's that story itself has been collected. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Robin number zero from 94, 95, somewhere in there, right after Zero Hour. It's not really much of a Two-Face story, but it's Chuck Dixon's attempt to get Two-Face connected to the Robins. I, th- I think it works. Not everybody likes it, but I think it works. And just in case you wanted to delve into the psyche of the character a little more, pick up Arkham Asylum by Grant Morrison. I had that one on my list, too. I mean, it, it blows my mind to think about they try to give Two-Face more options by giving him dice and a tarot deck, and it just confuses him. Yeah, it basically breaks his personality into the point where he can't make a decision like going to the bathroom. It's Yeah, I remember I read that at a very young, impressionable age. And I was always floored by sort of like the climax when he just he throws the cards away and basically tells Joker to screw off. <laughs> All right, Nathaniel, what do you got? Well, I'm glad I, I had a couple because the first one that came to mind was Long Halloween and Dark Victory. And obviously we've already waxed poetic about the anime series and the Dark Knight as far as viewings go. But uh, for another reading, um, it would be in terms of the trade releases, it would be volume four of No Man's Land. And uh, the way Two-Face – because Two-Face appears kind of sporadically across that whole event. But what happens in, in – I think in the volume before that, he and Gordon kind of cut a deal in terms of splitting up territory and how it's going to work. And then Gordon reneges on that. So in volume four, Harvey puts him on trial for breaking that deal. But then Gordon says – I want Harvey Dent to defend me. So you you have Harvey Dent cross-examining Two-Face, and it's just kind of amazing. <laughs> nice. Uh, the one other that I'll mention, again, is, if you can find it, Batman Annual Number 14. It came out a year after this one. It sort of redoes some elements of Harvey's secret origin. Some of the elements were taken for the long Halloween. Some of them were abandoned or changed for that, but it's really cool, and it's got a great close-up shot of his face, like I said, by Neil Adams. So, all right. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Woolnut with a very important message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. 
international best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important, they have commissioned me to start this podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will talk to experts and authors about the monsters from film, literature, from comic books, video games, from any place we find them lurking. Beware of monsters. You can find more information by searching Beware of Monsters in iTunes, your podcatcher program, or the RSS feed on BewareOfMonsters.com. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join us now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, consuming all around it in its mad quest to control the world. Friend, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. The epilogue of the original Sin story finds Steve Jones conducting man-on-the-street interviews with Gothamites to find out what ordinary people think of Gotham's costumed criminals. A woman says they scare her. A long-haired hippie says he doesn't believe in them. Batman and his criminals are all part of a CIA conspiracy. Another woman says she doesn't think about them. An old man says they're just part of the city like crazy cab drivers. A pubescent boy with a huge grin gushes over Catwoman, admitting he's got a poster of her in his bedroom. An elderly woman says her son-in-law was killed by the Mad Hatter, and all the costume criminals should get the death penalty. A blonde-haired Brit with a brown trench coat smoking a cigarette, probably made to look a lot like Sting. Eh, get it? He says he's not from around here and has no comment. A Johnny Rotten-type mohawk punk says he wants to get a gimmick of his own and be the man who kills Batman. A taxi driver says he drove the Penguin once and got a big tip, so he's okay with him. An old married couple say they hate the city, and they're moving to Florida as soon as they can retire. A different old man says he's lived in Gotham City for 50 years and has never seen Batman or any of his villains. A young boy says if he's bad, his mom will send the Joker to take him away. Another guy says he's got more pressing things to worry about, like a city garbage strike and his daughter becoming a skinhead. And a sort of proto-hipster compares Batman's rogues gallery to cultural icons like Bruce Springsteen, Donald Duck, and Humphrey Bogart. Steve Jones ends his special report addressing his audience from the street. He says from what they've seen and heard, the costumed criminals of Gotham are tragic figures, victims of circumstance. He thanks the people of Gotham City for their cooperation in the special episode of Steve Jones Investigates from Galaxy Broadcasting, The Station with an Edge. As he's saying this, a particular Gothamite walks behind him. This citizen is dressed in a purple trench coat and matching purple fedora. We can't see this person's face, but seeping out of his pores is a kind of mist or gas. As Steve Jones signs off, telling everyone goodnight, he begins to laugh. And laugh. And laugh. He can't stop laughing. He collapses onto the sidewalk, 
still clutching his microphone as the corners of his mouth reach to his ears, forming a ghastly, inhuman smile, and his death laughter grows louder, echoing up the street as the man in purple walks away. I've got to assume Neil Gaiman was at least thinking about Geraldo Rivera's special The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults when he planned the framing narrative for Original Sins. Rivera became more of a television personality than a journalist by focusing on sensationalist stories that tended to blur the lines between informational and entertainment television. The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults aired on April 1986. The show was heavily advertised and hyped, and rather comically turned out to be a bust when Geraldo and America discovered live that the vault in question was empty. Still, it could have gone much worse for Geraldo. While that special turned out to be an embarrassing failure to deliver its promise of treasure, the ratings were through the roof and Geraldo's career continued to soar afterwards. He became such an icon of this type of quote-unquote news that the sleazy television reporter became a trope in movies such as Die Hard and, of course, this issue of Secret Origins. But even if the Al Capone vault special had killed Geraldo's career, it still could have gone worse for him, as Neil Gaiman shows in this story. Steve Jones plays with fire and gets burned in the worst way. In trying to present the worst parts of Gotham City as sympathetic for the sake of ratings, by inviting men like the Joker into his world, he seals his fate and ends up just one more victim of the Clown Prince of Crime. The original Sins part of the story is interesting because it's not what you paid for. You got this book to see Penguin, Riddler, and Two-Face, and maybe a dash of Batman himself. It actually takes seven pages before we get into the first origin story, and those seven pages feel a little drawn out. If you're not invested in Steve Jones and his crew, the framing sequence can try your patience a little. It certainly helps seeing Batman right away, and he looks really damn good as rendered by Hoffman with Kevin Nolan inking. There's a pulpy realism to him that reminds me of Alex Maleev or Michael Lark. It's a really good Batman. Speaking of realism, that's certainly the approach Gaiman takes to how Steve's team approaches these villains. Of course they couldn't talk to Penguin, he's in hiding, but they could find one of his old goons. Of course the campy villains like the Riddler, made famous on the 60s television show that DC had been trying to distance itself from in the years since, would be looked at by the common man with disdain and even disbelief. Yet the single greatest thing about Original Sins is the final page. Not because of the Joker cameo, could we even call it that? More like an Easter egg. No, because the death of Steve Jones fulfills the promise made in the very first scene. Batman warned him to get out of town, that this new special was dangerous to him. Steve ignored the Batman, and look what happened to him. Chekhov's gun went off. The framing device, the narrative tool that they use to kind of tell these three stories... It's kind of funny. It, it, it fits right in with 1989 because you, you had this kind of cult of personality with reporters. You know, you had Geraldo Rivera on one end and like Morton Downey Jr. on the other. But you still kind of have that today. And, it, and it's kind of funny. It's, it, it's like one of those obvious things where somebody from some news network, especially now that we are so hit deep in the 24-hour news cycle, somebody would go to Gotham and try to interview these people. And somebody would try to, at the very least, try to like make a documentary about them. And I think it's because Batman's villains, as opposed to like Superman's, which are usually world beaters, or the Flashes, which I guess you could kind of put on the same tier, but they're they're so focused on the Flash. Batman villains 
most of them would rather not have Batman get involved because he's getting in their way. So I think Gotham, between its reputation as being like this crime-ridden hellhole that has these flashy characters that somebody would want to come to Gotham and try to, you know, try to get their interviews, get their stories, you know, to promote themselves. And what happens to this guy? I feel bad for him. But, you know, when you play with the Joker, this is what happens. You're going to die. So it's best to not even try to do that. There's this great story in like a Batman Secret Files that had somebody doing this sort of thing where they're trying to make their uh, their bones as a writer by talking about, you know, interviewing the Joker and all that. And he ends up killing the guy just because the Joker isn't fooled. The Joker knows you're using him. The Batman villains know you're using them because they're smart because they got to fight freaking Batman. So uh, I, I just really dug and really got involved with the characters because it's not just, we weren't just presented with like reporter guy doing his job. We got to see like everyone bickering and stuff like that. So it felt like a a real story. It could have been a very cheap framing device, you know, just as a way to, to have these three segments tangentially connected. But the fact that they bring it back at the end and end it on a Joker note after, you know, that being a recurring thing across how he really wants to get the Joker on the segment. That was a fantastic way to close that. Uh, and just random question. Um, there's a reference to Dr. Chilton at Arkham. Now, I don't remember the name Chilton being associated with Arkham before. The movie Silence of the Lambs hadn't come out yet, but the book had. Is that I, a nod to that? I'm assuming that's what it was. I'm assuming Neil Gaiman either read Red Dragon or Silence of the Lambs. Both books were out there. The movie Manhunter had been out, I think, by this point. I'm assuming it's a nod to that if it's anything. It seems like the kind of thing that would be a fun nod, but you're, yeah, you're right. I, I picked up on that too. I don't think there is a Dr. Chilton, I don't remember, ever mentioned in any other context related to the Arkham Asylum. Yeah, me neither. Uh, did anybody else notice John Constantine? Yes. Yes. That, that, that was made, great. <laughs> that made that whole thing work for me. I really like it. I think it's a really neat way to have an excuse to have people look into these villains and try to humanize them for television. I think that it plays with the idea that Batman villains are a lot like raccoons, where they're kind of cute and silly looking, but they'll claw your face off. (laughs) And I really think the raccoon is the most dangerous animal in the world, because you look at a possum, and a possum is hideous, and you don't want to pet a hideous thing, but a raccoon is cute. And a raccoon will kill you with rabies. And I think that's kind of what's going on with Batman villains is that you're like, well, he's a clown. He'll be fun to – he'll be good television. And it's like, yeah, but you're all going to die from laughing gas. I mean you sometimes forget that the outside hides the fact that this thing is actually dangerous. And that's the thing that Batman's trying to warn them against. That they may look silly on the outside, but these guys are actually really scary and you shouldn't play with that. You will get burned. Steve Jones ended the special asking his viewers what would the criminals of Gotham be without Batman? I asked my guests a similar question. Are Batman's villains celebrities? Is that their status in the DC Universe or in real life? And do we tend to glamorize monsters in our society? I think within the world of Batman, within the DC Universe, I think villains are possibly turned into celebrities a bit. However, that's not a criticism that I think carries over to the real world, at least not in terms of real world villains and real world monsters. And I know that, you know, people can cite occasions where a criminal has been romanticized. But I mean, the 
big times you can think of, a lot of it doesn't hold up for modern times. Like you think back to the gangsters of the 20s, maybe they kind of became celebrities a bit, but it doesn't really happen now anymore. And I think the reason for that is our real world monsters are not this colorful and this interesting. And once you dive into them, they're just horrible. I mean, I unless someone has a severe mental disturbance, no one's idolizing Jeffrey Dahmer. No one's idolizing John Wayne Gacy. You dive into what they did, and it's just this is just awful. But because of sort of the heightened nature of Batman villains, yeah, you can get someone who will think the Joker is the coolest thing ever. I think they couldn't help but be in Gotham City. I mean, there's a lot of crime in Gotham City. I mean, that's pretty much their number one like, cultural export is crime. It's pretty much what they do. What is it, that line that Jack Nicholson has in the first Batman movie where somebody says, like, you know, it's just made it this place so decent people can't live here anymore. And he says something like, you know... Decent people <laughs> shouldn't live here. Live be here. happier somewhere else. Somewhere else, exactly. I love that. And I think that's kind of what it is, is that there's so much of this ordinary crime that a guy who goes around in a purple and green suit doing these crazy over-the-top riddles or a clown that's constantly crashing these charity galas or kidnapping somebody or and killing them with laughing gas or turning the Statue of Liberty into like a giant smiley face or whatever it is he does all the time. You couldn't help but see them as sort of a celebrity. And I think that celebrity angle kind of belies how scary they actually are to most people. That most people are lucky enough that they're not going to be the person who runs into the Joker or the Riddler or Two-Face. They just go, hey, this is make for, you know, that's just this weird thing that that other city had. It's kind of like, what is that guy in, in New York City, the naked cowboy, who's always playing the guitar in Times Square? You end up thinking there's somebody like that. It's like, yeah, he's a criminal, but he's a goofball. And it's like, no, he's got a kind of a triple-digit death count. I think you need to be careful with this guy. For one, a hero is only as interesting as his villain. So, I mean, if you just have Batman taking down muggers and mob bosses, it's going to get old. So you're going to need an entertaining villain. But as far as making them celebrities, I don't want to sit here and wax philosophical, but uh, French philosopher Michel Foucault... Cisco, it's going to ream me a new one for this. Uh, French philosopher Michel Foucault wrote a piece called The Spectacle of the Scaffold in the book um, Discipline and Punish. And it really goes back to the whole public execution thing that everyone in town would turn out to see someone getting hanged. Is it entertainment? Yes and no. On the morbid side, yes. But at the same time, you're there to see justice be done. In the minds of the crowd, the person who has committed a crime is getting the punishment they deserve. You know, let's not factor in guilt or innocence at the moment, you know, as far as like, could they be falsely accused? That's, that's irrelevant to this. It's literally, we want to think that the best has been done. We've rid the world of one more villain. In a way, though, that does make them a bit of celebrity. They get their 15 minutes of fame, for good or ill. To use the Two-Face thing, it's kind of a double-sided coin. They become celebrities, but we don't want them to be. It's one of those arguments that I see get brought up every now and again. You know, Do we glamorize monsters? And we do, but I actually don't think it matters. Because I think anyone who says, you know, people will want to be like this, you are giving human beings too little credit. And it's always a very sort of pompous stance to go, well, 
I know that it's not a good thing to be like that or to idolize this entertainment, but those other people, they don't know the difference between fantasy and reality. It's the same pompous crap you get with people who are who want to censor video games or whatever. Well, I know it's not real, but the children, well, the children are smarter than you think, so shut up. And that got, that got a bit ranty there. Um, <laughs> glamorization is a thing that exists. I don't believe it's as damaging as alarmists peg it. Well, I think Oliver Stone would disagree because it's basically the whole basis of Natural Born Killers. Which is a great movie, but you know what? Nobody went and copycatted them so far as I know either. We do. There's, I mean, I work in a used bookstore, and there is an entire section called True Crime that are essentially – it's full of serial killers. And there are so I – mean, if you talk about fandom, the fandom that scares me the most of anyone where I don't know how to talk to these people, when I find out somebody's really into this thing, it makes me a little uneven, like, like that. I just get kind of unnerved about it, is people who are really, really knowledgeable about serial killers. <laughs> And when I meet those people or I get people who are really into true crime books, it always puts me off a little bit because the books are usually some of the most tabloidy stuff in the world that we do put people like John Wayne Gacy and, you know, people like, what's that guy based out of Detroit, Dahmer. We Mm -hmm. put them up as sort of like these weird superhuman figures that I can't believe it's like. They aren't just like a killer. There's there's tons of killers in the world, but there's this handful of them that have almost have become celebrities, and it's scary how much some people choose to know about them. Well, ESPN is just releasing a five-part miniseries on O.J. Simpson. That's true, and it's That's fascinating. True. I've watched like two of the five parts, and it's terrific. It's oh, gripping, yeah. and it's just like, yeah, like, what is it about this idea? And I definitely think this Neil Gaiman was picking up on this even back then, like, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah, there's this weird fascination we have with things that are scary and grotesque, and when they're real. And I always wonder about that. I mean, there was these sort of questions about the first season of Serial, you know, the, the mm-hmm. super hit podcast, where people really kind of had this question about the idea of doing a true crime story. And the fact that you have all of these people that are going over the notes of an actual murder case with an actual victim and an actual suspect and treating it the same way they treat Game of Thrones. <laughs> and how it's different to talk about like the Red Wedding than it is to talk about this girl being murdered in 1999. And a lot of the people that are fans of this thing, it occupies the same part of their mind and their emotions as trying to figure out who Jon Snow's parents are. And it's a little unnerving how into this sort of stuff we get because it really blurs the line of of actual human tragedy and entertainment. I mean, yes, you can say there's just some fascinating stuff in it where you want to know the psychology of how can a human being do this stuff. But there's also this just like ugly lizard brain side of you that just kind of wants to hear about the blood and guts. And I think that's the kind of mentality that the characters in the story have is they just see these villains as potentially good television, that you kind of want to exploit this thing. And they forget that there's, there's an actual real element there, and they pay for it in a major way. And they should be super lucky that the interaction that they have with the Joker is as brief and as targeted as it is, because things have ended so much worse. You could get that Dark Knight Returns David Letterman moment where he kills everybody. So yeah, I think we sometimes forget that it's fun to talk about these things as stories, but we forget that there are also people involved that died. And 
there's people that are left behind who are like, wow, I just watched this really entertaining movie. And you're like, yeah, that guy's playing somebody who killed my mom. <laughs> and that's where it sort of gets real and you get uncomfortable. Not wanting to end the episode on a down note, I posed one final, more playful question to the guys. What are your top five Batman villains? Let's do the obvious. Joker is number one, and anyone who argues otherwise is being a contrarian. That being said, I do feel like I have to put the asterisk. I don't like a lot of the recent stuff that's been done with the Joker. I didn't particularly like the new 52 version of the Joker. I'm waiting to see how the concept of the whole there's really three Jokers thing plays out, but I'm very skeptical on that. But breadth of his time, he is the Batman villain. I don't think you can argue otherwise. So other than that, the other four, in no particular order, Harley Quinn, who's just fun. She's just a bundle of fun energy. Ra's al Ghul, for being a very different type of villain from most Batman villains, because generally they're confined to Gotham, and, you know, it's just a threat. But he he's an international villain, and he makes – going up against him turns Batman into James Bond, and that's not a bad thing. The Penguin, and that mostly has to do with what they started doing with him once they got past the gimmicky birds and umbrellas and they made him more sort of the working class gentleman, you know, gangster. He's not even really trying to do the big costume thing anymore. He's just trying to run the closest thing to a standard bit of uh, crime (laughs) in Gotham. He's not trying to do the big thing. He's just trying to run a club and grift on the side. And I kind of like that. But he still thinks he's classy as heck, even as he does all that. And lastly, honestly, the ventriloquist. And I can't really tell you why, but there's just something about how unassuming that character is and how aggressive the puppet is. And that there are times even that that the ventriloquist is scared of Two-Face. I'm sorry, not of Two-Face, of Scarface. And the dynamic between the two of them and that he's obviously a, you know, a business and criminal genius, but he's so messed up. He is so messed up in the head that I, I just I always find that character fascinating when when they get into him. Color me a contrarian. Joker's not on my list in no particular order. Uh, Scarecrow, because I'm sorry. The thought that someone can sit there and make you experience your worst fear at any moment, that's damn terrifying. And I love it. I know it's typically a one-note villain. There's not a lot you can do with them. But when someone has the good idea, like the God of Fear story, where he essentially makes all of Gotham afraid, I love it. I'll come back for more every time. Uh, Second, Ra's al Ghul. And I say Raish because Denny O'Neill says Raish. Again, for all the reasons Nathaniel said, he's a global villain, and it does make Batman James Bond. Third, I'll, I got to go with Riddler. Again, it's a gimmick, and it, it's corny as hell to say that he leaves a riddle begging Batman to come stop his crime. But at the same time, he's a bit of a psychological villain. He wants to just prove he's smarter than Batman. If he can ever just come up with a riddle for a crime that outsmarts Batman, then he's won. And plus, the take that they did in Justice, that he has to give the the riddles to essentially say, I'm committing this crime. I'm going to break the law. It's a beautiful approach. Fourth, I got to go with Phantasm from the Mask of the Phantasm movie. <laughs> I know it's a it's a derivation on the Reaper story from year two, 
but it works so beautifully and that design is just so perfect i can't believe it hasn't been used anywhere other than the batman beyond comic I'd say it works better than the Reaper story from Batman Year 2. I was going to say that, too. It seems like every <laughs> yeah. time I hear people bring up that story, they're praising it, and I've never understood why. I really didn't like that at all. Oh, no. I, I love the Phantasm story much more. Oh, Phanta- yeah, Phantasm's brilliant. Reaper was not. Now, since you like the Riddler, I want to ask, are you watching Gotham? I watched season one. I haven't watched season two yet. What they've done with Ed, with Edward Nigma and the Riddler, I've actually really enjoyed. And one of the things they did that I'm not – I haven't seen in the comics, um, but uh, you know maybe it's been done at some point. Is because Batman doesn't exist yet. You know he's not doing riddles. You know to try and prove that he's smarter than Batman, obviously. But the way they kind of get him there is that he's getting a high out of deliberately leaving clues that could get him caught. Yeah. It's, so I I, I kind of like that take because most of the times I re- I read Riddler comics it's it's either put down to a pathological thing or he's just desperately trying to prove that he's smarter than Batman. Well, again with Riddler, I I like the animated series version too. The title of the first episode sums it all up. You know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? <laughs> and then for the fifth villain, I I gotta go with KG Beast. Who doesn't love the idea of that giant freaking gun arm? <laughs> my, oh, man. My my time with KG Beast has been somebody referencing that time that Batman locked him away and seemingly left him to die. And his appearance in the Assault on Arkham animated series where he's the one who gets his head blown off to show the rest of them that the, uh, that the explosive in their neck really works. <laughs> I know. I feel so bad for him. <laughs> like, we finally get the JKG Beast. And he's in the movie for less than two minutes. Clinton, you surprised me. You gave me more or less a real list. I was expecting what we talked about on, uh, on Facebook. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Shame, uh, Shandell, uh, Marsha the Queen of Diamonds, I'll, I'll put King Tut back on the list, Magpie, have you, I'm, I'm sure you two have seen Public Enemies, right? Yes. The Batman Superman, yeah, yeah. Yeah. whatever happened to Magpie, <laughs> she died, yeah, why, why do all the good villains die? Clark, what the hell are good villains? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure other people have said this, but I have to take the Joker off the table completely because, you know, it's just like that's such an obvious answer. Uh, my top five favorite Batman villains, and some people are probably going to laugh at this. Uh, number five, I'm going to put Bane on there because the Bane of Nightfall was awesome. And I liked the fact that this guy systematically broke the Batman down physically and mentally before taking him out. I mean, he cheated. But that is just the kind of villain you want from Batman. Uh, Number four, I will always love the Riddler. And I will always specifically love the Riddler in the suit. I think Frank Gorshin did anything for us in terms of of styling the Riddler. It's just putting him in, like, that three-piece suit. looks Mm -hmm. so elegant. It looks so sweet. Like, that's a man that's dapper, you know? (laughs) Uh, Number three, uh, Ra's al Ghul. Ra's is one of those great villains... Because he's right and he's wrong, but the more I get older, the more... I mean, there isn't a day that goes by lately that I'm like, you know, Rachel Gould's got a point. Maybe there are too many people on this planet. Good God. 
so uh, number two, I- I'm going to put the penguin because I love him so much. Number one, it- it's really kind of surprising, but I love Two Face. Two Face is one of those characters that is, you know, so- some villains like the like the penguin have a gimmick and they fight Batman, but villains like Two Face represent something of Batman. Because when you have Harvey Dent, who is a DA who's struggling in this shithole of a city to try to put these mobsters away. And, you know, depending on which version you want to talk about, he's got a bad background or, or not. You know, something bad happens to him and it fractures his personality. And, you know, you can get too silly with the two motif where he has to have twins and he only robs on the second month of the second day of the second year of the decade or whatever you want to say. You know, but I, I think deep down, Two Face is one of those villains where Batman looks at it and goes, "There, but for the grace of God, go I," because I could have easily gone down that path. So yeah, that's my top five. Oh, I had to think about this quite a bit, and I think a lot of it is you just realize how many Batman villains you know. Even though I know that Shag says that everyone goes through a Batman phase, I think I go through small, brief Batman phases. So I was thinking at my top five, uh, number five. I have Catwoman. I really like the idea of somebody that Batman has a complicated relationship with, that it's a bit romantic, but she's also a criminal, so he's conflicted, and sometimes she's an anti-hero. She's one of the few Batman villains that can also be a solo star of her own book and do cool heist stories. She isn't a killer most of the time, but she's also a thief, and she isn't a crazy person, which kind of makes her unique in that way. And... I just kind of like the idea of a character who is a criminal mostly because there's a thrill and a challenge to it. So Catwoman for me is number five. Number four is the Joker. And I would say that's every version of the Joker except the one where he cuts his own face off and wears it like a mask. I know, right? See, right there. Oh, God, I hate that. Um, He's just incredibly iconic and very versatile. That you can make him incredibly adult and scary, but you can also make him funny and kid-friendly. And I think the best kinds of jokers are the ones that are actually really funny, but then suddenly make you feel uncomfortable at the thing you just laughed at. Like Mm -hmm. that bit in the pencil trick in Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, too, where he has the detonator and it won't go off and it's just frustrating. And you realize, oh, God, yeah, he just blew up a hospital. Yeah, I, I had a friend in high school who had a seemingly unending supply of dead baby jokes. And they were just horribly bad taste. And you, like I would laugh at them, and then I would hate myself for laughing at them. That's what the Joker should do. Yeah, he really does. There was a great um, segment they used to do on NPR every so often called In Character. Mm-hmm. And they would spend like 20 minutes talking about a fictional character. And there was one segment that they talked about the Joker. And uh, they actually managed to interview like, Christopher Nolan. And they interviewed uh, Jack Nicholson and a couple different writers that had written Bat- uh, Joker in the Batman over the years. And the thing that Jack Nicholson, who I was utterly shocked that he would go on NPR to talk about Joker, who he hadn't played in like 25 years at this point. He said the thing he really liked about the character was that he found humor in the most horrible things. So you could throw acid in somebody's face and find it really funny or destroy a priceless work of art. Mm -hmm. And you laugh at it, but then it just makes you incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) And I think that that's that second bit. That that second bit of like a sort of an aftertaste of, oh, geez. But it's still really funny. So Joker's number four. Number three, I have Rajal Ghoul. 
I think that he gives Batman an excuse to go all over the world, and he's kind of like a Bond villain for Batman. And he's also kind of a Magneto for Batman, because he has these noble goals that he wants to achieve through these just horrible means. And I just kind of like somebody that gives you an excuse to do Bond stories, where Batman has a rocket, you know, and he flies across the world, and now he's got bat jet skis, and he's doing all this crazy stuff that he wouldn't normally do, and going through catacombs, and going through the Alps, and I mean, just really kind of cool stuff that is nothing to do with Gotham City whatsoever. And uh, so he's number three. Number two is The Penguin. And I really like the animated series version, and I think the comic version in recent years. I'm not as big of a fan of the Danny DeVito, I'm a freak and I have flippers for hands and I eat raw fish, you know, right in front of everybody. I don't like that one as much. I kind of like the idea of, like, a gangster with an affinity for birds and umbrella guns that has a nightclub and he's dangerous. He's a little bit silly, but the idea of this guy who was probably bullied as a child, but now those jocks that used to kick him around, they work for me and they're my heavies. Now if they beat somebody up, it's because I told them to. They listen to me because now they're afraid of me. And I kind of like that vibe. But number one Batman villain, Carmine Falcone. Hmm. It's the head of the Gotham mob. And the reason I really like him is I just love the idea of a costume vigilante fighting organized crime. And one of the reasons I'm on a real Daredevil kick lately is that Daredevil seems to be one of the last superheroes who regularly fights regular criminals on a normal basis. That he fights like organized crime, a bunch of guys down at the docks who are just tough and maybe they've got a tracksuit or a three-piece suit or they just regular mafia guys. And Falcone is that for Batman. And, and, of course, he was used to great effect in Batman Begins and in Batman Year One. I really love this character. And I think the thing that makes him kind of unique, then, is that all of these other Batman villains are kind of crazy and over-the-top and colorful. So Batman, who's this guy in a bat costume, is kind of playing the straight man, that he's actually not the craziest thing in this story. But when you make Batman go up against regular mobsters... Now Batman is the weird element in the story. Now he's the only one in a costume, and it sort of changes the focus. And I like that, and you don't get it very often. Usually Batman feels normal by comparison, but you forget that being a vigilante is kind of crazy, that he's doing crazy things as a response to a crazy world. And I think it gets more more obvious when you have him go up against somebody like Carmine Falcone, who's just this ruthless, vicious gangster. And I want more mobsters in comic books. I want more of them showing up because it's just a trope I never get sick of. I suppose I should answer that question, too. I'm hesitant to do this because my favorites lists change so frequently. Honestly, between the time I record this and the time you listen to it, my list might have changed two or three times. But oh well. Right now, at this moment, here are my top five. Number one, I know it's obvious, I know he's overexposed, but it's the Joker. The Joker is Batman's greatest villain. He might not be your favorite, but you cannot deny he is the greatest. He's the greatest villain in superhero comics, full stop. And yes, he is my favorite. He always has been. I don't like every Joker story. I certainly don't like every interpretation of the Joker. I found the Jared Leto version in Suicide Squad to be very underwhelming. And unlike Leto, I don't blame the director for cutting all of the best scenes. The Joker had plenty of screen time in that movie. He just wasn't captivating or spellbinding the way Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger or Cesar Romero or even Mark Hamill have been. But the Joker is still my favorite. 
Number two, Mr. Freeze. Since the first episode I saw of Batman the Animated Series, this guy has been awesome to me, and he's only gained in my estimation since then, Arnold Schwarzenegger's take notwithstanding. I like cold-themed villains, but this guy is far and away the best. His pathos, his tragedy, his wife, his costume, his voice, those red eyes from the animated series, and as good if not better is the version of Mr. Freeze that you fight in Batman Arkham City. He looks and acts so badass and that so robotic and death-like, but again with those red eyes. I love it. Number three is Catwoman. I know some people don't consider her a Batman villain. I do. She started that way. I know they've tried to make her an anti-hero, but to me, she's still a cat burglar. She's a thief, and that puts her on the other side of the law from Batman. But she's so cool, so sexy, and she brings out all of those uncomfortable questions in Batman that you have to address. Love her. I'm like that kid that Steve Jones interviewed. I used to have pictures of the purple-costumed Catwoman drawn by Jim Ballon on my walls. Damn. Number four, the Penguin. We've already talked about him so much, but I love that he doesn't seem like a physical threat to Batman. And he's not. But he straddles, or waddles, the line between serious street-level gangster-type villain and comical gimmick villain. You can embrace the umbrellas and the birds and the Silver Age wackiness and the Chuck Dixon-era Iceberg Lounge cobblepot. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. And number five... This one was so hard because there were four different characters vying for this position, and I'm going to give shoutouts to three runners-up, Two-Face, the Scarecrow, and the Mad Hatter. I love them all, and they all came really close. But right now, the way I'm feeling, my number five is Mr. Zazz. He is such a product of the 90s, but he avoids the same pitfalls that doomed other 90s creations because he doesn't have a costume. Most of the time, he's naked or close to it. If you're not familiar with Zaz, he is a completely psychotic serial killer, and every time he takes a life, he scars himself, keeping a tally of every man, woman, or child he's murdered on his body. Yeah, it's hardcore, it's disgusting, it's dark. But I like it. It taps into the dark recesses of where Batman can dwell that other heroes can't or shouldn't. When I started reading comics, Zaz was the apex of brutal evil killers. Even the Joker wasn't as distilled psychotic as Zaz. And clearly that upset some people at DC because they went and made Joker cut his own face off. For crying out loud, it's like they want me to change my number one pick. Anyway... The last thing I want to say about Secret Origins Special Number 1 that I completely forgot to mention earlier, this book is the first issue of Secret Origins I ever got. I picked it up in 1990 or 91, right when I discovered a comic store that gave me access to back issues of Batman and Detective. It's not my favorite issue in the series, but it's probably my favorite cover. I agree with everything the guys say at the beginning of the episode. Brian Bolland just knocked it out of the park. This is poster caliber work right here. Anyway, that's going to be it for the special. As of now, we've only got regular issues left to go in this series. Michael Bailey, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Views from the Longbox at viewsfromthelongbox.com is the easiest one. Uh, hopefully by the time this goes up, I will have my 
my full like backlog of of links and stuff because I have over two hundred and fifty episodes to to listen to and download. You can find them on iTunes or if you have like a, a podcatcher app, you should be able to find it there. There, I just talk about whatever pops into my head. You know, like I felt like talking about legends, so I got a bunch of people together, including Ryan Daly, to talk about legends. So. Yay. Um, there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which again, hopefully by the time this comes out, Jeffrey and I are back on track. He's had a really rough year, and our schedules just haven't met up. But we talk about the post-crisis Superman, who is my favorite character. So, And we are getting into 1995, or trying to get through 1995, and the death of Clark Kent. So that's uh, that can be found at FortressOfDailyTude.com. And every Tuesday night at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time, you can hear Steve Eunice, uh, the webmaster of the Superman homepage, and I talking on Radio KAL Live. Yes, a weekly one-hour live call-in show, if you feel so inclined, talking about the latest news of Superman. Mike Gillis, same question. Well, I actually have a couple of podcasts. One of them, uh, the main one that I do, is Radio vs. the Martians, where me and my tag team partner, Casey Doran, get a couple of our friends to sit down and we hash out a pop culture topic for hour and a half, two hours. We've done episodes on vigilantes. We just did an episode on open world video games. We've done Superman. We've done an episode on Batman. Uh, we go all over the place. Video games, comic books, movies, filmmakers, anything pop culture we will touch on. And Casey and I have also have a spinoff podcast called Podcasta La Vista Baby, which is our celebration of the cinematic dynamo and former governor that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we love this guy. We think that his movies are absolutely bonkers. We love them both in equal parts irony, but also total sincerity for exactly the reason that they made them. So far, we've done episodes on Kindergarten Cop, The Running Man, and his first movie, Hercules in New York, and we're about to do an episode on Predator, which we're really looking forward to because that thing is brimming over the edges with so much macho bullshit. I love that movie so much. <laughs> so you can check those out at Radio versus the Mark com, also on podcastalavistababy.com, and both of these shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and whatever podcatcher you have you get podcasts on. Clinton Robinson. Well, I host two blogs. first one is Coffee and Comics Blog, which can be found at coffeecomicsreading.blogspot.com. Most usually I post on Mondays and review just a random comic from my collection. It's usually a short review, long enough to be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. Uh, second blog is the Armageddon 2001 Revisited blog, and I post up there usually the first Tuesday of every month, going back through the crossover that was Armageddon 2001, for all good and ill that it was. And that can be found at armageddon2001.blogspot.com. And if anybody actually wants to hear anything more from me, I was recently on an episode of the Film and Water podcast, the Golan and Globus uh, Spectacular, along with Nathaniel. Although we, did, we didn't cover the same movie, thanks. No, no. <laughs> yeah, he got the good one. <laughs> well, that's because I called it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm like, hey, Rob, can I do this one? And he's like, no, that one's already been spoken for. <laughs> Darn right. I'll just, yeah. I'm like, I'll just do Bloodsport then. <laughs> I like you said he got the good one when there were like nine Colin Globus movies on that special. I, I, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I got the good one. <laughs> Nathaniel Wayne. 
easiest way to find me is to just look up Council of Geeks. Um, more specifically, you'll find Council of Geeks on YouTube, a Council of Geeks podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, at Council of Geeks on Twitter. You can email me, councilofgeeks at gmail.com. Uh, the YouTube channel is updated most frequently, but the podcast is home to the biweekly 90s comics retrial. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on another episode of Secret Origins. It was great to have you. Ah, it was great to be here. I, I love the show. You are filling the other half of the coin of the Who's Who podcast by being one of those reaffirmations of why I love DC Comics. So it's always a pleasure to be part of this. Which one is the scarred half of the coin? The way you talk about Roy Thomas sometimes, maybe you... But when Shag and Rob go angry, you know, I can, I can make the, the, the thing that that flips, you know. Danny Chase. It's always Danny yeah, Chase. Yeah, Danny Chase. <laughs> or anything involving the forever people. Yeah. <laughs> Before getting to your listener feedback, I wanted to share some Secret Origins-related information that I got at this year's Boston Comic-Con. I attended this year's convention with Nathaniel Wayne from 90s Comics Retrial, Paul Scavito, who's appeared on this show a couple of times, and another friend of ours named Justin. I also got the chance to meet up with Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog for the second year in a row. I'm going to do a more comprehensive account of my con experience on the next episode of Power of Fishnets. But for now, I had to share a couple of meetings I had as they specifically relate to Secret Origins. First, and I will explain this further on Power of Fishnets, but I went to this year's con totally unprepared. I didn't bring anything to get signed, I didn't prearrange any commissioned sketches, because I had no idea which creators were going to be there. It wasn't a last-minute trip, but I had just gotten so busy with traveling and other stuff that I went there with no plans, no expectations. So when I talked to people involved in Secret Origins, I hadn't prearranged anything. I basically just stood in line and asked them if I could pick their brain while they were signing autographs for other people. And I didn't record anything. Everything I'm about to say was typed frantically on my iPhone after the fact while I sat in the back of the Marvel panel while Brian Stelfreeze and Arthur Adams talked about their experience getting into comics. The first one I'll mention was actually the second interview I did, and that was with the artist Hannibal King. Early in the day, I commissioned a Zatanna sketch from him that I'll talk more about on the Fishnets podcast. Before I went to pick it up later in the day, I remembered that he drew the origin of Green Arrow from Secret Origins 38. At this point, I'd already talked to him about Zatanna, and he was working on a piece for me. I really wanted to ask him about that origin story, but I couldn't remember if Darren and Ruth Sutherland and I were complimentary of the art or not. I didn't want to tell him that I talked about his work on a podcast, and he go and listen to it and find out we were trashing it, you know? And yes, that's why I'm never going to meet Roy Thomas, Keith Giffen, or Trevor Von Eden. Anyway... I took a chance and went back to his table, before he was done with the sketch, and sort of reintroduced myself and talked about the podcast and asked if he remembered how he got the gig working on Secret Origins 38. After his shock and confusion wore off, it started coming back to him, and he told me that the assignment actually came through Dan Raspler, who we talked about on the last episode. Raspler was the writer of the Clayface 2 origin, but he mostly worked as an editor, and at that time, he saw Hannibal King's work at a convention in New York. He got King's contact info and said, I'm going to call you tomorrow with an assignment. 
When the call came, Dan said it was a Green Arrow story. Mike Grell was writing it, but he didn't want to draw it for some reason. Mark Wade was editing the story. And oh, by the way, the Dick Giordano was going to ink him. And also it had to be done in two weeks. So, you know, no pressure or anything. And Hannibal said the two-week deadline was pretty standard for most of his work at the big publishers. But the difference this time was that he had no prep time. He never got a chance to talk to Mike Grell about the story. They've talked since then, but not before he had a chance to work on it. He said that he would call Mark Wade and ask questions or advice, and Wade more or less said, I can't walk you through this. I've got too many other things to worry about. Hannibal also told me that Giordano really changed his art through the inks, inking all over his faces, and... He wasn't quite explicit, but basically hinted that Giordano said you're not good enough to be here. And Hannibal did say that he thinks it's his worst art that he's ever done. It was not a good experience for him. But it was a learning experience, he said. Anyway, Hannibal King was a super nice guy when I talked to him. If you ever get the chance at a convention, stop by his table, and the Zatanna piece he did for me is beautiful. The other creator I met, who I actually talked to first, was Mark Wade himself, the editor of nearly half of the books in the Secret Origins series. Again, had I known Wade was going to be there, I would have brought comics to sign. I would have begged for an actual sit-down interview or arranged a follow-up. None of that happened. I just got in line and told him I'd do a podcast about the Secret Origins comic that he edited, and could I ask you a couple of questions about it? And Mark Wade lived up to his reputation. He was friendly, he was enthusiastic, and he was overflowing with good stories. The line was so long that I couldn't ask him any more than three questions, and the first one that came to mind was a subject that many of my guests and listeners have been asking a lot recently. How did you approach the selection project for which characters got featured, and how did somebody like Chris KL99 end up in the book? And Wade said, because I like Chris KL99, very honestly and matter-of-factly. He basically said once he took over editing, he could do whatever he wanted with it, so he filled it with Silver Age characters and concepts that he loved, and novelties like the All Apes issue. Those were just the things that he liked and wanted to explore. He also said that none of the higher-ups at DC ever dictated which characters had to be in the book. They were satisfied if the really obscure characters appeared in Secret Origins because it at least secured trademarks for the company. I mentioned that his notes in the letters column often referenced upcoming stories that didn't end up getting published, and I asked how much warning he had before the book got cancelled. He told me that he left the book, and two issues later, DC cancelled it. If you look at the last couple of issues, Mark Wade and Michael Yuri are listed as the editors on a lot of those stories. Yuri is credited with editing issue 50, though Wade does get a special thanks mention on the Black Canary story since he worked with Alan Brenner on that tale before he left Secret Origins. So, according to Wade, when he left, DC still had plans for a lot of Secret Origins, but the book had gone bi-monthly at that point, so maybe he would have gotten word of its cancellation had he stuck around just one more day. And the last question I asked him, you knew I had to bring this one up. I asked about his working relationship with Roy Thomas, and specifically, if he ever had much to do when Roy was on the series. Wade shook his head, no. Roy worked from the original Golden Age plots and transcribed those stories, he told me, so there was never any notes or feedback or collaboration from his end. Then Wade sort of looked to the side and shook his head, smirking. You know the Plastic Man story, he asked? Yeah. That was supposed to be Steve Ditko, he said. Wait, what? Huh? 
Steve Ditko was supposed to have drawn the secret origin of Plastic Man? Are you kidding me? Wade said that Steve agreed to do the story under one condition. Oh lord, what crazy, unreasonable condition might that have been? Steve Ditko would only do it if he could draw it from the full script. He didn't want to do it in the old Marvel style, working from Roy's plot outline with the dialogue to come later. Ditko would only draw it if it was full script, or what you might call the way 95% of comics are done. But Roy Thomas refused. He would only do the plot and then dialogue after the art was done. So Ditko walked. I never forgave Roy for that, Mark Wade told me. And now, neither will I. Last episode of Secret Origins Podcast covered issue 44, So Many Clayfaces. We received new Twitter favorites and retweets from The 108th Sage, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Between the Pages, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comic Social Club, Dan at Dinosaur No. 1, David Bayer Jr., David Gallagher, Dread at Dr. 13 is the Best, Federico Hernandez H., Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Jim Bow, Keith G. Baker, KSC GSF Podcast, Lodix, Longbox Crusade, Lost My Place. That that's not me saying that, that's actually somebody's Twitter handle. Marcus, MTL Web 3944, Rift, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Sin, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. If I missed anyone's name, I apologize. Let me know and I'll be sure to mention you next time. David Gallagher tweeted that he met the various Clayfaces in the Batman role-playing game from Mayfair Games. He also said he liked Waxworks as an alternate name for Preston Payne. I'm not sure if that's David's idea or what, but I really dig that name, Waxworks. It fits in with his face and definitely conjures a horror movie vibe. Over on Facebook, we got a lot of new likes and shares from Aaron Head Moss, Adam Stabelli, Anthony Durso, Bass Levesque, Beware of Monsters Podcast, Bradley Austin Null, Bruce Weaver, Christopher Willette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Daniel Budnick, David A. Gutierrez, David Foster, David Trenner, Dale Dale, DeBeche, D. Huntsman, Derek William Crabb, Gotham Shioran, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Jared Driscoll, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Kyle Benning, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Matthew Burns, Max Romero, Michael Lane, Mike Gillis, Neil Whitney, Paul Scavito, Podcasta La Vista Baby, Prepare for Bear Mageddon, The Pulped Pixel Podcast, Radio vs. the Martians, Rob Kelly, Robert Guy, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, The Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzens, Vinny Gianfredi III, and Zeb Oswald. Thank you, all of you, for your support. On to the website comments. Remember, you can always leave feedback on the episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I kind of cherry-pick the comments that I choose to respond to, so I might not read every word of every comment. However, I do try to acknowledge every comment I get on the blog. And the first comment came from Rob Kelly from the Film and Water Podcast and, oh, so many others right here on the Fire and Water Network. 
Rob said, I really thought you guys would have been more favorable to this issue. It's one of my favorites. I think the cover is great. Kevin Nolan, as always, for the win. And I thought the Clayface 2 and 3 segments were terrific. The humorous take on Clayface 2 is genuinely funny and a nice change of pace. You know, after last episode, I thought about the Clayface 2 segments some more, and I realized that the only thing I didn't like about it was the fact that it came after the Clayface 1 segment. If the first story in the last issue had been better, or even just average, or just readable, it would have elevated the entire issue. But as the issue is constructed, we start off with this story that the art is so stylized, it's not even style at all, it's just garbage. So I come into the book with a very negative attitude, and I need something in the second story to recenter myself. I need to get my head oriented again. But the quirky story style that Raspler and Moreau do for the Clayface 2 origin doesn't do that because it's so cartoonish. If the first Clayface story was better, I would have gushed over the Clayface 2 story. If I read the Clayface 2 story in isolation, I would gush over it. It's the curse of its position in this issue that made me, and I think I speak for Kyle and Chris too, sound a little disinterested in the Clayface 2 story. And back to Rob's comment, he concludes with, I can say with 99.9% certainty, Ryan, that you will be the only person to ever draw a through line from the gay ghost to Black Lives Matter, not just in podcasting, but in all of life. In any case, you are right on the money. And I, for one, am excited that Brie Larson is playing Shazam. Joe X said, My first Clayface was the original, reprinted in Batman from the 30s to the 70s, a book I may or may not have lost from the library one time. Also, Giffen was using the shadowed face stuff on Video Jack and March Hare as well. It was really awful and couldn't be blamed on his infamous tracing habit. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, I think Ryan is onto something with Basil Carlo needing an independent villain identity. I can see a whole career for him as a specialist for hire who sabotages movie productions as the Rotten Tomato. <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, Paul, who, by the way, was my guest on the Hawk and Dove origin, goes on to say, My favorite part of the episode was when Ryan continued to discuss his disdain for Hawk and Dove. Listening to it was the equivalent of Ryan running the issue down in the street, reversing back over, then doing a burnout and circle work on it. We get it, Ryan. You're not a fan. You know, after that episode came out, I found like seven of the first ten Hawk and Dove issues in a 50-cent bin. I did not buy them. I'm just going to keep twisting that knife in your heart, Paul. Uh, Clinton Robison, who you just heard on this episode, said, Ah, the mud pack. It's like the old Five Doctor special from Doctor Who, but specifically for Clayface fans. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Am I right that it is the Preston Payne Clayface who was shown in Grant Morrison and Dave McKean's Arkham Asylum graphic novel? That was a particularly gruesome depiction of him. While I agree with Ryan's comment about there being too many Clayfaces, and that has diluted the name somewhat, Alan Grant did a nice job in developing the romance between Preston and Lady Clay in the Shadow of the Bat series. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast replied to Jimmy's first question, I think Clayface in Arkham Asylum is supposed to be Preston Payne, yeah. I remember Batman saying, don't touch me, so it would have to be him. But who could really tell? Sean Walsh said, Surprised to hear the critiques about Kevin Nolan's cover. The art is strong and the poses are great, but I appreciated the mix and shades of color. Clayface 3 does seem a bit out of place with the colors of his Superpowers-era Mr. Freeze costume. Bless you for pointing that out. 
but given the more natural alternative of having a lot of brown on the cover, I didn't mind what they went with here at all. Like I said, I really like the pencils and inks on the cover. I like them a lot, but I think the colors are too muted and monochromatic, including the text. Maybe just if the text and letters were a different color palette, I'd like it better. Uh, Sean then said, The art on the Matt Hagen Clayface story has aged well, something I didn't expect when I revisited the issue. My thoughts on the choice of humor and art for this tale has always been that because the character was, and still is, dead, DC felt they could give his origin a more humorous angle without damaging the Mudpack story. Carlo, Payne, and Lady Clay needed serious tales as they were the active threats. Hagen was lingering there in spirit, so... whatever. That's a really good point. I never thought of that, but it makes sense. Ange, from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, commented on the Keith Giffen story, For me, the most difficult thing is that around this time when Giffen's art is at its most inscrutable, his stories are at the peak of quality. The Creeper story, the Five Years Later Legion, the Heckler, those are great, great books, arcs, plots, but the art is just so murky and, yes, at times lazy. There can be no reason only to show a forehead except to not have to draw a face. Interesting point. I didn't think about that, but yeah, while his art is spiraling off into something unrecognizable, Giffen was writing or plotting a ton of great material at this time, including Justice League International, which you can hear about on the Bwahaha podcast right here on the Fire and Water Network. Leslie Trigg said, I can understand how many of you feel about Keith Given's art during this time. For a straight-up superhero story, it can feel a little jarring, especially if your first time with Giffen was the Great Darkness Saga, as it was mine, some of his best work. However, I want to ask you to look at things from a different angle. During this time, Giffen was doing his ambush bug work and in 1985 did the Legion of Substitute Heroes special. His new style fits those books and their style of humor, and Giffen has continued to transform his art style. Today we find a more Kirby style. Each time Giffen changes, it takes a moment to adjust. Evolving art styles is fine. Artists should be allowed to grow and change, even if we don't always appreciate the final product. And if you're developing a quirky style for a humor book like Ambush Bug or The Legion of Subs, that is cool. But that is not the tone of the Clayface story, and that's not the style either. So. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I'm with Joe. I came to Clayface via Batman from the 30s to the 70s, that book more magical than anything the Vishanti ever put their name to. And Basil Carlo remains my favorite. Why the heck should he change his name? He originated it. Let the latecomers call themselves the Soilers or the Mudwitch Cuckoos or something. I am enjoying Basil in current issues of Detective Comics. I suppose we have to assume this version never moitered anyone. Yeah, I have a hard time believing Batman would welcome Clayface into the fold if he was really a hardened murderer. Although, Bruce still let Jason Todd walk around after he shot and stabbed Damian Wayne and Tim Drake in the Battle for the Cowl miniseries. So maybe the line between good and bad is a little softer for Batman these days. Or maybe Battle for the Cowl is just an awful story and Tony Daniel should be punched in the face for writing it. I'm kind of cool either way. Matthew Cody said, Chris and Kyle were great guests, and I loved this episode. In fact, I have loved every episode of this show. You always do a great job, and I thank you for all the time and hard work you put into making this one of my favorite podcasts. I listened to the first two episodes and jumped forward to your Justice League International coverage, listening to the new episodes as they come out. I'll hold my tears in once you finish the series, knowing I still have lots of episodes to enjoy. No promises once I have finished those, however. 
Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines podcast and much, much more said, Keith Giffen is one of my childhood favorites, and I was introduced to him during this period. My understanding is that Giffen discovered Jose Munoz and became so fixated on his work that it radically and irrevocably altered his own approach to art. The comics journal accused Giffen of outright swiping, but he always insisted that Munoz's art was never on his board while drawing. I haven't read this specific story, but I found his style in this period extremely inviting to the point where I bought far too many terrible books, Justice, March Hare, Video Jack, for Giffen alone. I love the nine-panel grids and obtuse angles. It's like David Lynch, who will take you on a serious head trip if you can get past his awkward style and technical deficiencies to just float through his mindscape. I could usually follow Giffen's art if he was interpreting another writer, but what frustrated me to the point of being reticent to buy his work was when he wrote by and for himself. Pure uncut Giffen is so harsh as to seem toxic toward attempts to read it, and to put a fine point on it, he too often wrote fairly simple stories in needlessly opaque ways that more than borrowed from Howard Chaikin's own less inviting tendencies. Giffen the writer is the guy that turns me off without the sweetening of scripters and co-plotters like Demetrius, Levitz, or Fleming. And Chris Franklin replied to that, I can appreciate Giffen being excited about exploring a new art style, but his editors really should have reined him in on the mainstream projects like this. Frank apparently had a different idea of how mainstream Secret Origins was at the time because he responded to Chris, Giffen went from drawing one of DC's few sales successes of the Bronze Age in his well-liked Kirby meets Perez style to the final issues of the exceptionally unsuccessful Hex and Fillins on New Universe books. He was suddenly available to do all those low-selling independent comics and short-run comedy titles. He only got to write Justice League because nobody else who wanted it had better to offer, and he only got to draw it on stuff like the Global Guardian's backups so the actually popular lead artist could keep up with the schedule. It's like when Kyle asked why they couldn't get Howard Chaikin to draw this secret origin. Because Chaikin was moving units on Blackhawk and Shadow is why. Giffen was probably cheap and fast, so he's drawing stories in the latter issues of the soon-to-be-canceled anthology book instead of something people were buying. Secret Origins was part of his punishment for not being commercial anymore. And then the irredeemable Shag said, I hate to agree with Frank, but yes, this style by Keith Giffen came from the influence of Jose Munoz, and in Giffen's defense, his artwork made the five years later Legion era work. Perfect example of the right art on the right book. Unfortunately, his style continued to evolve to the point of being practically illegible in Heckler and Trencher. You know, I bought the first two issues of Trencher at the time, and now I remember I loved them back then. I thought that book was the coolest, but then I, I just promptly forgot that the book even existed until you guys started mentioning it in these comments. And speaking of which, Shag gets the last word saying, Great episode. Really enjoyed hearing everyone's opinion, and I'm starting to think Ryan hates everything. Pretty much everything. He probably hates hating things, too. Well, if everything means Hawk and Dove, then yes, I hate everything. Oh, did I say something about Hawk and Dove? Well, that reminds me that I got a new iTunes review after episode 43. It's another five-star review, thank you so much for that, from Nerdy Love 1997 and I'm pretty sure this is Dead Robin from the Pulp to Pixels podcast. The review is titled, Selling Hawk and Dove Short. First, let me start by saying that I love this show. I am genuinely saddened that there are only nine episodes left. Ryan Daly should be really proud of completing this series. I listen to every episode. You know a show is good when you find yourself laughing, agreeing with, and arguing with a recorded podcast. 
This show is like hanging out with friends. I have to say, though, that I totally disagree with Ryan's review of this issue. He's talking about issue 43. As a huge Hawk and Dove fan, I loved this issue. I was reading their monthly regularly when this came out, which made me buy this issue, and it added a really important layer to the monthly book. I don't disagree with you that it might be too tightly connected to the monthly series to really work for Secret Origins, but if one of the points of the book was to get people into other books, or to get people who read other books to read specific issues, then it works. It was a lot like the Animal Man origin for me. Both worked as major additions to the monthly series. Again, great show. I hope that, after you get some rest, you have something else big on the horizon to fill the hole that will be left by the ending of this series. Well, thank you for that review, and I've got several things in the works for when Secret Origins is over. Some big, some small. Hopefully they're all exciting to at least some of my listeners on this show, and hopefully none of them are as time-consuming as this one. But that is all for this installment of the Secret Origins podcast. When I said it was a special episode, I didn't know it was going to be four hours long. Once again, I want to thank my guests Michael Bailey, Mike Gillis, Clint Robison, and Nathaniel Wayne for appearing on this episode. I want to thank all of my listeners for their feedback, their iTunes reviews, their likes, shares, favorites, and retweets, and I want to thank Mark Wade and Hannibal King for their stories. Next time, I promise you a really short episode. Seriously, it's Blackhawk and El Diablo. Probably get it done in like 20 minutes. Until then... Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Every time there's physical action, bodies get weird.